This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 200. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramiyasha. And that's right, it's the big 200, double of 100 episodes. What an accomplishment. It was one thing to already do 100 episodes, but do another 100 on top of that? What are we, crazy? Probably. Well, <laughs> we've been doing this for over six years and we haven't stopped yet and we're just going to continue on making more episodes, talking about all sorts of more manga. So here's the 200 episodes, here's the 200 more. But we, of course, want to celebrate our 200 episode very specially by talking about a manga that encapsulates our feelings on our relationship to media and our relationship with other people through media and there just happened to be a comic that had just came out that so perfectly explores and encapsulates those teams. And that is Goodbye Ari by Tatsuki Fujimoto. And we had a really pleasant time discussing it with some of the people who our friendship with through this podcast, who our collaborations with through this podcast mean so much to us. Our good friends, Maxi Bernard, Sakaki, and of course, V-Lord. They all joined us for the discussion of Goodbye, Ari, and we had a great time talking about it and exploring all sorts of themes that Fujimoto really communicates through the work and what is truly like one of the most stunning pieces of art he has created yet and not saying something considering Fujimoto's caliber, but it was a fantastic discussion and truly among the topic worthy of our 200 episode. I think you guys are really enjoy it. But on top of that, I mean, that would have been great enough for our 200 episode, but we're also going to be giving you our latest news update, our news roundup from the previous month, covering all sorts of really incredible serialization news updates and some cool anime news updates and other miscellaneous interesting pieces of news. And there was just so much news to come out of April that we won't have time to talk about it. Otherwise, it'd be like a six, seven hour podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yup. So we'll be saving a lot of those pieces for next time for our June news coverage. This includes the latest NPD Bootscan report, which by itself could be like a half an hour discussion. So we just need to save that for time. But there's plenty of news, plenty of stuff going on in the manga world to talk about. And that was as true 200 episodes six years ago as it is now. And we are just happy to be here to talk about it all. And we're so grateful to you all, our wonderful listeners, for supporting us through our 200-episode journey. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, 200 episodes. I can't believe it. I'm just kind of in awe that I've done 200 episodes of anything. This might be the longest podcast I've ever been a part of, quite honestly. Uh, I don't think anything I've done has reached like this length. And I don't know, I'm just I'm just kind of speechless. And I'm excited at the thought of just doing more more of this show. Um, I think, you know, Lum can agree that I think thankfully we're still pretty rare in the go. There's still so many, like, there's still so many manga that we want to talk about on the show. I don't I don't know if we'll ever get to literally everything we want to talk about in the show. I mean, we barely <laughs> dipped our toes in it. It's really the tip of the iceberg, if even that. It's like the very point of it. And we still have miles upon miles, meters and meters of the manga iceberg to go down. No, I mean, there's just so much manga. There's always, of course, manga being published, all sorts of new titles that are being localized, old titles being rediscovered and localized for the first time in English. There's just such a great world of manga out there for us to discuss and talk about. So 
I mean, we're going to continue exploring this world as far as we're able to go. And there's just so much out there to discover. And I think we're really excited to keep going as we have for the past hundred episodes into just this wonderful medium that we all so appreciate and get so much enjoyment out of. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't I just can't really express like how much manga means to you know, the both of us, not just me, you know, like, it's a medium that I'm super, super invested in. And it's just, it's, it's just the thing that I love talking about the most. And I, I just feel so blessed that like, I have kind of our own little corner of the internet to talk about that kind of stuff. And I really enjoy doing the show. Uh, no matter how long I have to edit these podcasts, like like this one, pulling the curtain back, but nobody cares about that. Um, at point point being, I'm I'm just I'm just so happy to be able to do this show. And yeah, I, I just I just don't really know what else to say other than, you know, thank you to everybody who's been listening to the show, uh, especially since the beginning. And thank you to everyone who's ever been a part of the show and has, you know, given their time to, you know, talking about the thing we all love the most. And I really hope we can do more. I want to do more. So I think we should do that. Absolutely. It has just been a really incredible experience. We've had a lot of great opportunities come out of producing this show and doing this show. Met a lot of wonderful people. We've talked about a lot of great titles, including reading for the first time, a lot of titles that would quickly become favorites of ours. And it has really ingrained us as part of the greater community, helped us connect the community together in an even greater way in being a part of it. And it's really nice to just be able to have an outlet to talk and share our feelings on manga and to be a part of the manga world and learn more about the industry and provide some hopefully entertaining, hopefully interesting and informative podcasts, interviews, reviews for people to also enjoy and get a lot out of. And we are just very grateful to our listeners, especially for indulging us as we have gone on for 200 episodes talking about all these things we enjoy and the various tangents that our conversations take us. Oh, yeah. And all the places we have gone and that you've been following along with us and that you have been keen to hear from us and hear our thoughts out of all the people who are doing great commentary on manga, great work, analyzing, reporting, talking about just these comics and this media and this world, that you would spend your time just listening to us and you're interested in us and you're supporting of us. It really means a lot. And we're so really grateful for your listenership and support for these past 200 episodes. And we hope we can continue to delight and entertain and inform and report and analyze and laugh and explore and just enjoy talking about manga for 200 episodes to come and maybe even hundreds of episodes more. All right, let's let's get to episode 1000. <laughs> yeah, maybe we will end up being a one piece length. <laughs> podcast in terms of episode count uh not i i can't think of very many podcasts that have that have done that yet some some, some i'm sure are very close but uh, yeah I, I can't think of any that have reached that point quite just yet and hey hey maybe maybe we will you never know you never know what life will take you as i always like to say yeah you never know i mean if we do continue this for i don't know 20 more years maybe we will reach that point <laughs> just like one piece oh boy um 
like I said, you know, if, if I can have a microphone in front of myself at the age of 80 and still talk about this stuff, I mean, you know, if I can, I'll do it. We'll do this for as long as we can. And uh, hey, maybe there'll, there'll be one day where we get tired of this and we decide to stop. Like, again, you never know. But for now, I'm I still got the energy to do it. I love talking about manga all the all the time whenever I can. And for now, I, I want to keep doing this. So I don't think we're going to be stopping anytime soon. No, we won't stop. We can't stop and we will not stop. Trust me, at, at the at the length of some of our episodes sometime, we literally can't stop. Oh, we should probably stop this <laughs> self-congratulatory <laughs> intro and move on into our discussion of the news on this what will end up being a very long celebratory podcast for our 200 episode, because there is a lot of news to cover. As mentioned before, there was so much that we had to split it in half and save the other half for next time, like saving your leftovers for the next day. Don't want to eat it all at once, you know? No, you got to conserve all that good stuff, uh, you know? You know, so you don't, like, just blow it out all at once, you know? It's it's too... If you can get two meals worth out of food, you can get it. If you can get two podcasts out of material, you should get it. No, but for sure. no. I mean, let's get into the news here. We have a lot of serialization news and a lot of cool new serializations that are coming up from creators that we'll enjoy and heck including someone you're going to be hearing on this show later on the show this is a mangaka that we know our good friend Sakaki really really loves and that is Tsubasa Fukuchi creator of a lot of Ueki and Psych once again they have come out with a new series in Weekly Shonen Sunday called Golden Spiral it's been serializing since mid-April. It's a fantasy story. It centers on a character called Zabi who enters into the outside world to save his kingdom. And it's like the last nation of humans and it's fast running out of land and resources. So it sounds like a cool, like, adventure post-future of a fantasy world story. So, yeah, I think that sounds pretty neat. It sounds like a bit of a departure from some of the previous, or at least the most recent works that Fukushima created to go back into, like, more of a big fantasy epic type work. But I think Sikaki's been enjoying this a lot. I'm enjoying, like, seeing him having his favorite author back on a new series again. And I continue to hope to see more of Fukuchi's works be localized in English. And maybe this will be one that we could see in the future be brought over. I would like that. In terms of other returning authors, another mangaka I've been interested in, Ayumi Kimura, who is best known for their manga Mixed Vegetables, is transitioning from shoujo to shonen. They are publishing a new manga in Shonen Magazine Edge on the magazine's next issue coming out on May 17th called Am I the Only One with No Chance of Winning? This is going to be a first love revenge romantic comedy. And yeah, it's the first time Kimura is being serialized in Shonen Magazine. And her style, it definitely looks much different than what I remember of Mixed Vegetables. So yeah, I mean, Mixed Vegetables is a series that I read the first volume and some change of it. And I really enjoyed it. So I've always been meaning to get back to it. Always been keen to check out more of Kimura's work. And it's interesting that they've come up with a new work. And it's going to be published in a Shonen magazine. And it definitely shows an interesting evolution in artistic style. I'm definitely keen to hear more about this. As it comes out, we learn more about what it's about. And it maybe picks up steam. And I definitely would like to see it be localized one of these days. I believe Mixed Festivals is the only work of Kimura's that has ever been localized so definitely would like to see more works from them 
Next, we also got a new manga from a creator of a newer manga that is localizing. I should have been really enjoying. Days on Fez's creator, Kanato Oka, has launched a new series in Katakawa's comic new type website. And it's called Kenran Bankara. That's right. It's like a kind of ding-linkman bancho manga. Ooh. And the first couple chapters of this is already out. It's basically set in Japan during what is called the Golden Age of Delinquents, where delinquents ran rapping in northern Japan, driving people out and making a lawless land. And so one day a man known as the White Demon suddenly appeared and defeated delinquent after delinquent and slowly restored order before he disappeared and was passed down as a legend among delinquents. And so now in the Nokoka Ward of Delinquent World Tokyo, state school sends state representatives to discover a new White Demon, basically a new unifying figure for the delinquents in the country. So yeah, that sounds like a cool, fun premise for a delinquent manga story. And I appreciate that there are going to be both male and female delinquents as apparent from the cover art. So that's nice to see too. And I like Days on Fest a lot too. I've been reading that as again, Fest has been releasing it. And that's a much different manga. It's about music festivals and whatnot. But I like their art style. I like their storytelling. So definitely keen to hear more about this one. And hope we can see it be collected in volume form and localized very soon. I know I'm interested in this next one, but I know you were also very interested in the next title, a new manga from Daisuke Garachi of Children of the Sea fame. Yes, uh, let's talk about Igarashi's new series for a bit, uh, because it was announced in Kodansha's B-Love magazine recently, uh, in the June issue, I should say, that Daisuke Igarashi, uh, once again, the author of Children of the Sea and such other series like Witches, I believe that came out already at the time of this recording. Yeah, shout out to our good friend Aiden, who did a great work letter in that title. Mm-hmm. But yes, they're going to be coming out with a new series entitled The Kamakura Monster Cat Club, uh, which I guess is based on a one shot that uh, ran in October 2021. I guess this is uh, it's being turned into a series, obviously. And the story centers on humans, cats and bakeneko, which is a kind of supernatural shape shifting cat in Japanese folklore. And I guess that's really the basic premise. We don't really know much about it other than that. But, uh, you know, judging from the key art, it seems like it'll be a more like subdued sort of relaxing series. I can't imagine, you know, a whole lot. I can't imagine there being a lot of like super high stakes action. I mean, hey, you never know. I could be wrong. But this seems a lot more like a a possibly relaxing series that it'll probably be more like, you know, slice of life and the like. But seems like a very soothing read. I really like the colors so far, and um, yeah, I mean, I I check it out. Absolutely. Always love Igarashi's style and his storytelling vibes. Very much looking forward to reading Bitches and my physical copy comes in. And definitely hope to see even more of Igarashi's works be brought over, and especially this one. The next title we're going to talk about is a new manga from Miyuki Mitsubachi, the author of Cheeky Brat. And they are basically launching a new manga in Haunting Yume this summer. We don't really know too many more details about this, but Cheeky Brat was a pretty big title for Haunting Yume over the past couple of years. Yen Press just started releasing it last year, but it's one that had like a sustained popularity for a long time. It's basically about a basketball club manager who falls in love with the star player. And I enjoyed the first one when I read it. I definitely would be interested in seeing more of their works, as well as continuing to following along the Cheeky Prop series. So very interested to see what Mitsubachi's next work will be about and whether it'll take a different direction from Cheeky Brat or it'll be in the same way. Now on the subject of like other shoujo manga things to look forward to, Fruits Basket is getting another new little mini manga 
that is going to be coming out alongside the prelude compilations film Blu-ray release on June 24th. It's basically going to be an eight-page manga that seemingly is going to be about how Kyoko responded to when Toru was born based on the sample pages. So that seems pretty cute and charming and a good little supplemental addition to the prequel film, which is basically about the Kyoko Katsuya relationship and everything that led up to the beginning of Fruit Basket with Toru's on her own and stuff. So yeah, I mean, I don't know because it's a supplemental material for a Blu-ray release, whether this will ever get compiled in a, another physical collection of Fruit's Basket. We know there's a fourth volume of another on the way. I don't know if this might be included as part of that eventually too. But I'm definitely keen to see and learn more about it and have an official release made available of it at some point in the future. Now, speaking of supplemental slash spinoff works, an interesting project is seemingly happening in Big Gangan regarding Star Wars Visions. Basically, there are going to be manga adaptations of the various anthology shorts of Star Wars Visions and the Mandalorian itself. So a lot of manga adaptations of Star Wars for both Mandalorian and Star Wars Visions. And these are going to be started on the next issue of Gangan on May 25th. And headlining the first of these one shots is Kamomi Shirahama drawing a adaptation of the elder she already did the character designs for the elder but now she is like adapting it for the magazine itself completely so that's really cool mm-hmm. and we also got haruichi who drew the star wars lamb princess of alderaan manga drawing an adaptation of lopen old show in the following issue in july Yusuke Osawa of Spider-Man Fake Red is drawing an adaptation of The Night Jedi in the August issue. And Keith Kiskato, who drew The Little Witch Academia manga, is drawing an adaptation of Trigger's The Twins short in the September issue, which that's a good style matchup. So very keen to see what other authors are going to be brought in to adapt the remaining five shorts that currently have not been announced to have adaptations yet. And curious to see how the Mandalorian adaptation is going to turn out. That's also going to be drawn by Yusuke Asawa. So, yeah, I'm curious to see how that one is. We usually have been getting, like, these Star Wars manga adaptations recently, like the Leia one, like there was a Luke one that came out. We also got the Rebels one. So I imagine once these get collected in volume format, we'll see an English localization over here. And I'm definitely keen to check them out read it with such cool artists involved. But speaking of other cool spin-off manga adaptations, Ruby Ice Queendom, which uh, I previously talked about, is basically getting a manga adaptation as well, ahead of when the anime comes out this fall, by Soekane Yukumiko of Her Size of the Dead. And that's going to start in Degeki Dayo in the August issue of the magazine out on June 27th. So yeah, a few months ahead of when the anime is actually coming out. So yeah, new Ruby manga starting up again. This time not under the Shueisha umbrella though so probably no simul pub or immediate adaptation like the previous two that were under Shueisha umbrella and got inclusions from Viz and the Shonen Jump magazine and then with the other one simul pub on the Shonen Jump app platform so that's a bit of a shame but again Ruby is a very popular franchise I imagine that this will also get localized and released at some point in the future as well. And I'm definitely curious about the Ice Queendom series and the project, so I'm definitely keen to check this out too, especially since Suekai Kumiko 
is adapting it. And, you know, I've heard a lot of good things about Versailles to the dead and a lot of complaints and laments about how the localization of that series was never finished. So it's nice to see them do some work again. And hopefully this can be a new work of theirs that can get localized and can get released over here. Now, that does it for new serializations uh, that we're going to talk about for now, but we're going to move on to talking about some things that are actually going to be ending soon. The first of these being everyone's very smutty Yakuza manga, Yakuza Lover. That's ending in a few chapters at the time of this recording. In the September issue, that'll be out in late July for Cheese Magazine. So that will be in its 11th one, as previously reported. That will be when it reaches its climax. So, yeah, I mean... I think it's like a fun romp, you know, sex comedy from the early ones or sex drama rather. It's not that comedic, but it's it's enjoyable and it is how blatantly it's just all about just the very steamy sex between the two leads. But yeah, like, yeah, that's nice to hear that it's going to be coming to an end. It's going to be reaching its climax pretty shortly. And we will see whether like the author will get another work uh, in the future. I'm sure they w- will come back in full swing and bounce back quite well in their next title as well. But yeah, uh, this is one that has been quite well liked. So very, very interested seeing how it'll end. And I'm also interested in hearing how Morimo Ragawa's Snow White Notes is going to end. It's ending in three chapters as well in the early August issue of Monthly Shonen Magazine. And this manga, unfortunately, has a very spotty localization from Kandansha Digital because of the agencies used and whatnot. You know, not the best. But I still am keen to check it out at some point. And if nothing else, hopefully at the conclusion of the series, perhaps there could be hope for a new, another anime application to continue and adapt it fully. But if not, you know, I am definitely keen to see how the story ends. And I'm looking forward to Marmo Ragawa's next title after this, too. Now, another title that I've been really enjoying that is ending pretty soon, like by the time we're listening to this, it'll be ending the next day or two, is Shio Usui's Donut Under a Crescent Moon. That'll be ending in Comic Yurihime on May 18th. And yeah, I just really like this one about like a woman who starts out, she doesn't even realize she's queer yet. She's like just been dating guys and nothing's really clicking, but she really ends up, you know, admiring this older senior at her workplace. And she... Ends up, you know, just in interaction with her, starting to get some feelings for her. And like, you know, senior at her job is like, she's kind of like an aloof, stoic type, but she has like a very mischievous younger sister that she's taking care of. And then she immediately kind of connects the dots between, oh, there's something brewing between them. So there's a lot of fun stuff. There's a lot of nice, just musing on like kind of self-confidence and relationship woes and difficulties that are pretty relatable and also very compelling. So I've really been enjoying this one and I'm definitely keen to read how it concludes and how the relationship between these two ends up resolving because I, I found it very, very compelling and very, very sweet. And on the subject of other queer works, Yuki Kamatani's Hirayat, which just got its localization release digitally just the last month or so, is going to be concluding in the May 20th issue of Morning 2. And this is another work of Kamatani's that I've been meaning to check out. You know, I definitely am just so keen to check out more Kamatani's work. So this is one knowing that, you know, it 
it's going to be a relatively short word of theirs, uh, an old thing to consider, probably just three lines long. It also makes it quite accessible, so I'm hoping that Kodansha's release of it will end up releasing the third volume before the end of the year, too. So, yeah, like, I'm definitely keen to just probably read it all in one go once all the volumes are out. But, yeah, I mean, now we're going to talk about a series that has been, you know, going on for a while, so its end has been a long, long time coming. It's kind of an update on a thing we already talked about previously. We did talk about it before. Yeah, but we now do know that Chai Furu originally was reported to be ending in 49 Wild, but it will now actually be ending its 50th Wild, which, hey, if you're going to, if you're so close to an even multiple of 10 or 5, <laughs> why, why not make the extra step to reach that, you know? Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, I mean, Obviously, I'm I'm not nowhere near caught up on Chihayafuru's manga, but it it seems like they had to extend that to volume fifty because of I'm I'm assuming that's how much the story needs before it ends. Yeah, they credited it to story development, so they just needed more time with the story to wrap everything up. It seems more denouement, I think. Mm, which is good because one thing that always disappoints me is like when we read manga, c- kind of like kind of like some of the canceled show to jump manga we cover every once in a while, where it just ends. It has a very like rushed ending, like oh they achieved the goal, but there's like no time for to just sit in the aftermath and be self reflective, or they don't have enough time to la- actually like end it properly, so they kind of have to just rush to the ending. Yeah, I mean in Chiaferu's case, it's clearly not. That obviously, because the game between Chiaya and Shinobu had been going on for several volumes. Damn. At this point, I think it's like really, you know, what you need is just again like that time to just sit with the conclusion of that, to sit with the conclusion of the story and with the characters, you know. And so I think it's a good idea to for Suigetsugu to give that extra bit of time to just you know give that closure for all the characters. I kind of wonder how many actual chapters of Chihayafuru will be in Volume 50, because it looks like uh, Volume 50 is also going to be including some sort of spin-off manga, which is interesting. I wonder if they needed something to still kind of like fill the volume out. I think so. I mean, I think what happened here is that they need more pages to the point where it's like, well, this is more than what we want to put as just a single volume, but it's not enough for a full volume necessarily without including additional bonus material. So I think that's why they're including a spinoff manga there. But I imagine that it's enough pages that they didn't just want to make an extra long final volume. Yeah. Because it, it just saw the pinch of, well, you know, this is close to a full volume anyway. We just add like another, maybe I assume like a 50 page thing, you know, to add on top of it. So we'll see how it turns out. If nothing else, you know, I'm just very keen to read through to the end of Chiaia Faru. The Kodansha localization is still like 20 volumes behind, but eventually it'll get there. So, you know. Definitely, definitely keen to read it. Yeah, it, it looks like Kodansha USA still wants to put out more series like Chihayafuru and uh, another series that I wonder if they'll ever stop on is Ace of Diamond, uh, you know, stuff that long. Yeah, I mean, the sched- release schedule is inconsistent, but they seem committed to releasing all of it. And, you know, at the time of this recording, the most recent volume Kodansha USA has put out is volume 31 of Chihayafuru. So, you know, less than 20 to go. We'll see if maybe in the next, oh, two, three years they reach to the end. I could see that. Um, but again, another manga that we mentioned previously was ending was Golden Kamui. As of April 28th in the 23rd issue of Shueisha's Young Jump, Golden Kamui has ended. And, uh, you know, I could also tell Golden Kamui had ended because uh, I, I had definitely seen at least 
a small bit of outpouring on Twitter from, uh, you know, other Golden Conway fans who are keeping up with it. Yeah. A lot of fan art, a lot of reflective tweets, you know, just celebrating praising series and everything was about, you know, cooking, the wilderness, hunting, men's asses, <laughs> the male body, mm-hmm. dicks and dick jokes. Hairy men. Hairy men, yeah, all the good <laughs> stuff, you know? Yeah, I, I've said it before, but Golden Kamui is definitely a series that I definitely want to get back to. And I'm definitely excited to get back to it so we can talk about the rest of it on the show at some point. Absolutely. I mean, by the time it finishes, it'll have been 31 volumes long. So we really, again, scratched the surface. We read about a third of it. So there's plenty more to discuss. Oh, yeah. And that certainly warrants a revisit. Mm -hmm. I think so, too. Yeah. But related to Satoru Noda, you know, they aren't resting on their laurels after ending Gaul Economy. They're going to use their success to revisit an older work of theirs, Supin Amarada, their ice hockey sports manga, which was short-lived. They are going to be relaunching that. They're going to be, like, rebooting that. And so I appreciate that they're like, okay, now that I've had my big successful work, I'm going to go back to this story that I was passionate about that did not pan out short the work but now that i have the the clout now that i have like the popularity of my you know big hit series i'm going to go back to that and now i'm going to be able to make that more of a hit potentially so i appreciate him going being like hey i can revisit my older work now that i'm still very passionate about now that i have a hit under my belt and now i can just do the power move of being able to do it again and now have more of an audience to follow along and hopefully it'll be more successful this time which hey i'm all for i'm definitely keen to read like an ice hockey manga by note i would like to read the original run of soup in amarada um, and maybe hopefully that could get localized one of these days but i'm also of course definitely keen to read this new revisited version 10 years out after the original had ended and curious to see how that one pans out too so very very cool you know it's um this is kind of tangentially related this is really funny because i actually just re-listened to one of our older episodes uh episode 50 where we talked about hot from uh, akira amano which is a one shot about ice hockey and i, I revisited our discussion and i remember being pretty disappointed by that one shot but also mentioning how like oh ice hockey is like one of the few sports that I actually kind of watch on TV from the time to time. And man, I would actually love to read a manga about this one. And I, I don't remember if I knew about this manga when we recorded that. I want to say I probably didn't. But if I did know that, I'd just be like, yeah, I, I just... I just want this. This this actually looks like a really interesting take on like ice hockey. I mean, I guess compared to any other ice hockey manga I've may have seen around, but you know, I I I would just be happy to get any kind of like ice hockey manga like localized. So I'm I'm hoping someone picks this up. Yeah, for sure. And with how big a hit Golden Kamui was, I would like to think that has created some sort of interest in licensing the original soup in Murata, or at least it will help make more of a case for this new version of it when that gets enough chapters to be collected and potentially licensed localized. Now, continuing on in the Jump family of titles that are ending, we're arrived to Manga Plus slash Jump Plus stuff and a title that we talked about before from Jump Plus. That was part of the Manga Plus as any. That's Don't Plus Sukime-san. That ended earlier in April. 
And overall, this series, I kept up with it. It was just very cute and charming between the relationship between the two leads. You know, the ending isn't anything big or anything. Like, it ultimately just ends with the big moment of, oh, they're holding hands as they're walking home. It's just very sweet. You know, the relationship between these characters, just a lot of cute uh, interaction between them. Like, a lot of the final chapters leading up to this were, like, the (laughs) male lead, like, just meeting all of Sakimi's, like, parents or like other people in her life and stuff you know just cute chapters like that like i thought the chapter where he met her dad was very fun so you know it's overall just like a cute rom-com series but just some very nice kids uh and there's sweet sincere genuine relationship and i appreciated it so you know it had a very nice ending and uh i'm looking forward to what the author does next as I am, of course, looking forward to a lot of new titles that are coming up on Jump Plus, particularly a new work by Kazusa Inaoka, Camellia Curtain. Kazusa Inaoka was the creator of I Tell C, if you recall the series that just ended last year. But, and I'm interested in this new work. It's going to be like a drama series focused on a boys' theater club. So I, I wonder if they're going to be in kind of their like, you know, just kind of weird ideas and habits for you know, comedic scenarios or just really out there scenarios into their new series too. And so I'm just, yeah, looking forward to a new work by them. I am surprised it has not been picked up by Monica Plus for localization yet, but I would hope to see it because I think Ollie Tilsey had a fairly good cult following here. The other work in the round that also just debuted alongside in Marriage Toxin, that did get picked up pretty much immediately. So Hopefully we can see this soon as well. I would like to see and read this work of theirs as well. As someone who appreciated I Till C, if not like think thought it was like great necessarily. It was still a lot of fun to read. And Shonen Jump Plus is also launching a new manga from Homura Kawamoto creator writer of Gake Gurui and they are doing another gambling manga with a twist that's going to be set in the Bakumatsu. This title is called Bakumatsu Gambling Barbaroi. It's going to come out on May 20th. It'll be drawn by Toyotaka Haneda and it basically yeah it's like a gambling manga essentially but it's going to be set in the Bakumatsu and you know so it's going to be like samurai <laughs> like there's a samurai girl in the teaser image and there's like dice and there's poker chips in the backgrounds and there's like you know gold coins and stuff so you know i think they seem really into the gambling theme which makes sense considering their hit series and yeah i think us uh, putting that in that historical setting you know might both be fun just uh with how over the top weird it can be but also they can play with like the setting in a fun way and the archetypes of the setting in a fun way so i'm definitely keen and interested to see how this one pans out and hopefully it'll be more long lasting than their previous attempt at a new series which got cancelled after like one chapter that is a kai parody manga <laughs> and now we're going to talk about some stuff that's like a new edition in jump plus that isn't like a new series and to explain that it's like basically you know Aikash triangle no longer publishing a weekly shonen jump it's been moved to Shonen Jump Plus as of the end of April. Basically, every chapter of the manga, you know, as a, as a bonus for moving into public, is going to get a color page going forward. And the release schedule is basically now street new chapters and a break week. So that makes sense. That's a fair way to go about it. And yeah, like it's 
surprising. It's not surprising that they made this change. If anything, I am surprised they didn't make this change sooner considering the content that I catch a triangle keep trying to go into, like how it kept trying to raise the bar of what they could get away with. And then Jump Plus is going to have less strict standards imposed on it, I imagine. So I think like <laughs> Yabuki will be able to get even more shameless with what he wants to do with it. So we'll see how that affects the direction of the series, how it pans out. So the big thing to also talk about this, I will say, is that because it has moved to uh, Shonen Jump Plus, I somehow in correlation with that, it seems Viz is no longer going to be localized in series. Like the chapters since it has been moved to Jump Plus, you know, it's still on Manga Plus, but Viz is no longer publishing new chapters. Localization and services has been moved to Media Do. Mm. So, you know not as strong localization quality in terms of reputation. I mean, actually reading the chapters, it wasn't like that big a noticeable a change. To me, it felt it wasn't that bad a localization. But like, yeah, it's it's a curious matter. I, I really do feel like as we've been talking about it in several instances where we've talked about Ayakashi Triangle before, it really feels like Viz did just want to wash their hands of Ayakashi Triangle. And the series moving from Weekly Shonen Jump to Joe Plus gave them that opportunity to just be a wash of it and say, you know what? No, no longer in Weekly Jump anymore. You know, we wanted to publish everything Weekly Jump, but hey, this is not technically Weekly Jump anymore. So, you know, you can have it, <laughs> uh, Shueisha and Manga Plus. We don't want to localize anymore. Seven Seas took the volume <laughs> releases off our hands. We'll retain the chapters that we already localized on our app, but we're not publishing the new ones. So it's a very curious circumstance. One of these days, I would love to just interview someone who's in the know about what is going on? What went down with Ayakasha Triangle? Because as just the circumstances, this publisher switch just mid-run is just so fascinating to me. But you know, if you are a fan of Ayakasha Triangle, rest assured you'll still be able to read new chapters on Manga Plus and from Seven Seas when they release the volumes. Mm-hmm. You know, it is really funny to me, and I don't want to throw like too much shade, but it is funny to me. And I know this episode isn't out yet, but we have this already recorded. It is really funny to me that uh, they, they've washed their hands of Ayakashi Triangle, but yet they still have things like uh, like Gaku Hote and Bill King. And they still promote things like Gaku Hote, like as recently as last year. You know, so it's it's interesting double standards in terms of like what <laughs> content, like how much is too much for them. And what is too much for them, I suppose. I mean, I guess all you can say is times change. I don't know if that's really it, but I don't know. Yeah, I think the big times change difference, unfortunately, would be the Nohurirawatsuki thing. Yeah. I think we can really delineate a pre and post uh, Watsuki uh, world and thought process and like what you're comfortable with and what they're comfortable with publishing yep. themselves. So it, it's just an interesting situation development for sure, though, in the case of Ayakaji Triangle. It's just so fascinating that they just use this opportunity to completely drop the series. And then they're like totally just fine with like, yeah, Manga Plus, you can have this now. It's not a weekly show and jump anymore. It doesn't matter to us. Seven Seas took the volume releases. We didn't want to do them anymore. It's fine. But yeah, I mean, just on the subject of series moving platforms, this is moving us away from Shoeisha and the Jump family. But just to touch on it, Arata the Legend is moving from Shonen Sunday to Sunday Webry. And as of earlier this month, it's been serializing new chapters. And the transfer was due to her health. 
from Watase's own statements on Twitter. And, you know, if things become difficult for them again, you know, she'd be able to put the manga on hold more easily and rest more easily. Whereas with magazine, you know, there's more complications with taking sudden hiatuses, you know, that, that causes a lot of problems in the publication pipeline, of course. So that's a total understandable reason for the move. But of course, we also know, unfortunately, that Batase had contentious relationships with editors she was working with at Sunday. You know, she was a victim of some sexism and stuff from her editors. So I think that this move also hopefully kind of gets her away from that environment that seemingly was not very super positive for her and allow her to continue the series just with a little more freedom and hopefully with like a kinder editors too. So I'm just hoping for the best for her and hoping for the best with her plans on Arata the series. And uh, back to the Jump family of news, you know, and back to Weekly Shonen Jump in particular, we are going to talk about a series that is not ending yet, but it is going on a break in preparation to embark on its ending. And that's Black Clover, which should be no surprise. I mean, you already know this. We've been reading Black Clover, but yeah, it's on a three month break as it just wrapped up the Spay Kingdom arc and is now prepping for the next big story arc, the final story arc that will conclude the series. And what a cliffhanger of a twist it ended on, too, before embarking on that break. But yeah, I'm very curious to see like what the final arc of the series, you know, will be, how it'll pan out. I mean, the big subtitle for it is like the ultimate Visitor King. So, I mean, ultimately, I, I imagine it's, you know, we're going to see the fulfillment of Asa's dream to become the, the Visitor King, become the so-called ultimate Visitor King in this conflict with this new villain and whatever territory we go into next. But yeah, I mean, Black Clover had a really great run during the Spain Kingdom arc. I'm definitely excited to see what the final arc has in store. But it's not the only Jump series entering its final arc. Mashal is also, you know, it's so funny because I feel like in the last couple of news episodes, we've been talking about, oh, Komodo said that Mashal has entered its final arc. Oh, no, Komodo retracted his tape and said that he's, it's going to go on a little longer. But no, now in the 11 volume, once again, Komodo is saying that Mashal is entering its final arc, starting with material, including the 12 volume. So material that, you know, we're already reading right now. And I guess that makes sense. It seems like we're, you know, pretty much been gearing towards a final battle with Innocent Zero and there's all sorts of texts in the most recent chapters that are like, oh, Mash is about to begin his final battle and stuff like that. So... Yeah, it makes sense. Like, yeah, okay, we're in the final arc. But it's just funny that seemingly Komodo, in just recent memory, seemed to go back and forth between statements of like how long the series was actually going to run, whether it was close to the conclusion or not. But yeah, if Mashal's in his final arc, I'm curious to see how it's going to pan out and how much more we have of it. I mean, I'm still enjoying it. Maybe not as much as I did in the earlier parts of the series, but I'm still interested in the ride of it, interested in seeing how it ends up resolving itself and topping itself in you know the ridiculous absurdity of mash and his ability to one up increasingly absurder and more powerful foes and stuff like that but you know there's things leaving jump things entering its final arc or things just move from jump outright but there's also new things coming to jump a lot of new things that uh it's pretty exciting and that includes a lot of new one shots from established and beloved creators including a new work from we never learns Suisui Taishi called Mangaka no Neko that's going to come out in the 24th issue of Jump. Then we got a new work from the author of I from Japan, Cho Noare Taishitsu no Ore ga Sute Secret Service or Hirota Ken. I was going to come out the secret issue of that on the 25th. And then we got a new one shot from the creator of Red Hood. Yuki Kaguchi is going to be drawing this title called Nande Nanda-san that's going to be out on the 26th issue. So in some secret weeks we're getting new one shots from 
pretty well liked authors like authors who had like a if not a not necessarily hit it only Susie Taishi had a hit <laughs> job, but you know it, a lot of these other ones you know they have a following you know people are aware of their works they got localized and stuff so very very keen to see how these pan out and of course you know, by the time you're listening to this like Susie's one shot has already come out it remains to be seen whether Viz will have localized that or Manga Plus will have localized that and it also remains to be seen if the other ones of these Seishi Hayashis and Yuki Kawuchis will get localized too on either platform I would like to see them, of course, but um, we'll see how those turn out. Well, well, hey, maybe maybe if they get picked up, we'll talk about them on our next Novel Pops episode. Yeah, I definitely would be keen and interested in talking about new works from all these titles, especially Taishi Sisui, you know. I really, really enjoyed We Never Learned, so definitely keen to see a new work of this, especially since, you know, it's about a cat mangaka based on the title. I, I guess so, so. That's interesting. I want to see what that's all about. So we, we'll see. I'm personally very excited for another work from Yuki Kawaguchi. I desperately need more of their stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely they're very talented artists. So I'm definitely keen to see a new work of theirs as well. And the creator of Orange from Japan, Hayashi, you know, I'll also see what they are going to come up with. Uh, whether this is going to be another like kind of tinly wailed PSA, hey, promote the prefectures of Japan type manga, or is this going to be something, you know, new and original, but still barring upon, you know, oh, hey, reference to jump series, you know, type of humor. So we'll see. We'll see how that pans out as well. But that's not the only new thing coming to Weekly Shonen Jump. And this thing is going to be less than more than just a one shot, more than just one week, uh, at least for a little while. We'll see how long term it'll pan out. But Colton, you had thoughts on this one. Yeah. So obviously, by the time this episode's out, you know, the first chapter or two will be out. But it was confirmed by Shonen Jump that they are going to be picking up Super Smartphone by Hiroki Tomisawa and Kentaro Hidano for an English Simul Pub like they always do with Shonen Jump stuff. And uh, this is a series about a high schooler who finds a phone that could search for anything on Earth and use it to solve difficult crime cases. Uh, Now, before we get into how I feel about the premise, I don't believe Hiroki Tomisawa has done anything like super notable, uh, not as far as I could tell anyway. Kentaro Hidano, on the other hand, uh, I do recognize from Ziga, and so I'm I'm excited to see something else drawn by him. Because look, Ziga wasn't like amazing, but I, I at least like the art no. for it. You know, <laughs> the art was probably its strongest suit. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> but yeah, so I have very mixed feelings on this, just based on the premise. I wanted to talk about this to see because obviously we're going to be covering this on our next Simul Pubs episodes when it's out, and. I, I want to see if the series proves me wrong on something, because I will say I am always excited when Shonen Jump tries to take a whack at a mystery manga, because unlike Shonen Sunday, uh, Shonen Jump, I don't think at this point has really ever had a real iconic mystery slash detective type series. But uh, yeah, I don't know. So I'm excited to see something like this from Jump. I always I always enjoy it when they do stuff like this. But also, I don't know how I feel about the premise of a guy who basically uses his smartphone to solve crimes like that feels like the kind of premise and i i don't usually say this about like new jump series but i've never come in contact with a series that's from just the premise alone has made me feel like huh this could get boring really quickly like really easily like i i can already feel like this is an idea that i feel like has a really big chance of like going wrong very badly 
Um, I, I don't I don't know how you feel. Yeah, I think that a smartphone that can search for anything can be too easy of a device to quickly solve problems. Mm-hmm. And there is already another series that proves precedent with like the smartphone Isekai manga, which in translation is a very funny read, a tank designer. Which, you know, we joked about at the ANYC panel for J Novel Club. But like the actual, you know, title, like for anime watchers or stuff like that, you know, people are like, oh, this is kind of boring. You know, he just has a smartphone and he can solve all these problems. It's not that interesting. <laughs> and so it's like, now that's the thing is like smart. That's kind of like an interesting conversation that's often been talked about. How like a lot of modern movies actually try to set themselves more in the past, especially horror movies. They they try to ha- have to invent ways around smartphones because smartphones solve a lot of problems uh-huh. as a way to access information or a way to communicate with others. That you know kind of takes the drama out of a lot of otherwise uh, compelling or threatening scenarios, and so. The challenge with this is going to be being able to create scenarios, create situations where the smartphone provides the main protagonist access to information that he can find helpful, but there's still going to be drawn that like the smartphone, you know, it can give him information, but it can't do everything for him in terms of actually solving the crime. It can give him a lead in terms of what he needs to search for and do investigations. But ultimately, there's going to have to be more drama in terms of like, well, okay, now that I have this information, the next step that will go is actually solving these crime cases, you know, is actually going to put me in some danger. There's going to be some more drama that way. So we're going to have to see how the author executes on that premise and whether they can find drama in a situation where the protagonist potentially has access to a resource that gives them like old information they could possibly need right at their fingertips. Now, one thing I want to just call attention to, because I find it very funny, is that in the promotional art, the smartphone in this kid's hand is very small. Oh, yeah. You notice this, that it's like he can hold it in the in between his fingers. It's not even as... Most smartphones are as big as your hand. They, it stands the length of your palm. This smartphone looks to be like at half that size generously. <laughs> so I don't know if this is an art error or this is actually how big the smartphone is actually going to be. And maybe that's going to be the other drama. That's going to be our challenge. That This smartphone is too small. So this guy with his big fingers keeps misspelling things when he's searching for it. And it's just very frustrating to use. And so in a tense situation, when he's trying to look something up, it's like, oh, man, I can't type efficiently. This interface is so clumsy <sighs> and so hard to use. Uh, so it's going to be a double-edged sword. It's like, yes, the tool is useful in theory in terms of what it has, gives you access to, but it is so difficult to use practically. And maybe that's where the drama can come in. Ooh, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll go a notch even higher. Uh, I bet the thing that's going to keep him from using the smartphone too easily is going to be he's never had a smartphone before. And in fact, he's actually really bad with technology and doesn't know how to use most things. Yeah, that'd be the trite way <laughs> to do it for sure. Yeah, that'd be the way to do it. Oh, this guy is somehow a hick who in 2022 has has not grown up with a smartphone and doesn't know how to use it. So that's that's so believable and relatable to your your young audience. (laughs) Look, I I really hate to judge a series right out of the gate, but this feels like the kind of thing that I think is going to end quickly. 
In fact, let's let's do this. I'll 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 bet a number. I'm gonna say right now how many chapters I think this will last, because I'm actually pretty confident in this. I'm going to say this series will last no longer than 13 chapters. What do we get out of the bet? Oh shit, I haven't I hadn't thought this far. What should we bet? Well, you're the one placing the bet. What do you want to bet on? Mm, if I'm right, if it ends up being 13 chapters long. Should we include like jump plus epilogues in there? Like I would be surprised if it's got a jump plus epilogue. Mm, okay, let's let's say I I will still say thirteen chapters without a jump epilogue. Like the jump epilogue, if it gets one, is not included in there. So I'm just gonna say thirteen whole chapters in weekly show to jump specifically. That is my bet, and if I'm right, you have to give me f- five dollars. Okay. I will say that this, I can't imagine the series has a sustainable premise. I also don't really believe in it necessarily, but I will say it will not be an abject failure just to argue the contrary. Okay, fair, and, fair. And uh, to say that, okay, well, I will say this will last, this will last five-ish months. It'll last around as long as ITLC. It'll last about 20 chapters. Okay, 20 chapters? I could see that, actually. Personally, I I already bet on 13. I want to stick with that. But I would be surprised if this got more than 20 chapters. Yes. So, yeah, I guess that's going to be the bet. And then reciprocally, if I win the bet, I guess you can give me $5. I mean, I can give you 5 That's fine. Yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, we heard it here. This is the big <laughs> episode 200 uh, gimmick. We placed a, a smartphone bet, a bet on the super smartphone manga. Uh, possibly actual money involved. That's pretty fun. <laughs> oh boy. Um, again, I'm. I don't know something. Something about just the premise alone. I'm. I'm very confident that I think I'll. I'll end up being right. But I guess we'll see in at least three months, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I know this is gonna. First couple of chapters are going to be out by the time we release this episode, but I thought it was worth at least you know reporting on and getting our feelings out ahead of time because I if I I I want to see I want to see if I end up being wrong when we when we read it and talk about it on our next Simon Pub episode. So I I want to before and after how I feel a pre and post super smartphone. You know, I just realized it should really be more smartphone related specific. This bet. Rather than just kind of the money thing. I mean, we can keep the money I, thing. I I'm not betting my smartphone. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just saying, how about, like, the loser of the bet has to watch that smartphone Isekai anime and then review it as a bonus pod for the Patreon. <laughs> how, 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 long, how long is it? It's like one core, I think. I think it's getting a second season, though. So depending on the timing... <laughs> Uh, you might have to, one of us might have to watch more. Oh, okay. Okay. I like that. Um, I, I accept if I, if I lose, I will watch the entirety of that smartphone anime and we will do a bonus podcast for it on the Patreon. Right. The loser does the bonus podcast. The winner doesn't have to be a part of it. Ah, fine. Okay. To. I'll, re- I'll review it on my own. There we go. No, okay. I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I accept the bet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess until then, um, look forward to our thoughts on Super Smartphone again on our next Simul Pops episode. I'm I'm really interested in seeing how this fares. We'll have a lot of smart things to say about it. We're not going to phone it in. <laughs> oh, um, I think that's about it for serialization news, right? No, it's not because we do need to talk about some 
oh, related no, 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 to wait, jump right. family Whoops. things. <laughs> because, uh, you know, in terms of other manga coming back, we have another title to talk about. That's Blood Blockade Battlefront. We thought that it was going to end with its second season. No, uh, there's going to be a third part to it, a third season to Blood Blockade Battlefront. Basically, a second part to Blood Blockade back to back. So it's it's, it's a little confusing. It's like the third season of Blood Blockade Battlefront, but it's like the second part of uh, this back-to-back. But yeah, it's going to continue in the summer, the fall issue of uh, Jump Square Rise. So yeah, we're getting more Blood Blockade Battlefront. Hmm. So hey, it's still going on, and maybe that still holds uh, a chance for us to one day, you know, wait it out for us to get a relicense of the series and get the back-to-back series. I hope so. Yeah, that's really interesting, because I remember when we reported on it ending originally, like, it, it, it really seemed like it was just the end of Blood Battlefront, so I was definitely not expecting like another part. So I'm I'm interested in seeing how this goes. And the final piece of serialization news to talk about, also related to jump related things. So this is an in Shueisha jump, but this uh, is related to an author who has like a work who's running in Jump Square right now, Shueisha Ten. That author Asakura Akinari, their novel that Six Line College Students is actually getting a manga adaptation by Kega Osawa called basically that title plus one in the next issue of Young Ace in June. And the manga, it's not exactly an adaptation of the novel, but it has a similar premise. It's going to have original developments. It's going to have character designs from the original character designer of the novel, Ikura Tsukimoto. So that's pretty interesting. The premise of the novel is that it's six college students who apply to a prestigious IT company that hires prospects straight out of graduation. And the company tells the six students to get together, discuss their possible work. But they're told in the middle of the process that, you know, only one of them is going to get the job and they have to decide which one gets the job. So that turns them all into rivals. And then they each receive an envelope that says one person in the group is a murderer. So not only are they competing against each other, they're also trying to suss you out like which one of each other is like a murderer. And yeah, like this novel from Oscar, it came out in March 2021. So just a few months before they launched Shoho Shoten with Obata. But yeah, it's going to get a manga adaptation. And, you know, I really enjoy Asakura's writing in Shoho Shoten. And this seems like more, you know, dramatic, uh, more serious type story in terms of like this novel. But I'm definitely keen to check it out. I'm curious about the story. I'm curious about this manga adaptation. And if either the novel or the manga gets localized, I'd definitely be very interested in reading it. Mm-hmm, for sure. Speaking of things that I'm interested in reading, that moves us to our interest pieces, and it moves us to this cool new Kickstarter, reimagining the classic Unico character and series by Asama Desuka, and that's Unico Awakening, a new manga adaptation, a collaborative like English and Japanese publication uh, is being made for Unico. It's going to be done by Gorohiro and Samuel Satin, and the Kickstarter campaign is pretty interesting because it features a ton of of interesting contributions from both like very popular mangaka but also like american comics artists or illustrators and yeah it's, it's a pretty cool campaign i mean among the prints that are being offered uh, from where is ours include akira himakawa junko mizuno zoli katie longwa peach momoko kamome shirahama tokito koro and tom war who animated on wolf walkers and of course peach momoko is gonna have like street prints as well just by themselves and there's also going to be like a unico picture book my baddie cop who you may know from the one piece podcast and a lot of other podcasts like 
you know, they're a great illustrator. And so they're, they're making like a, a picture book for this. Mm-hmm. That's going to be like an add-on for the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, Steens, who took over Heart of the City, whose comics I really enjoy. They're making a mini comic for this. Uh, there's going to be a Taylor card made by Julia Rack. Amber Padilla is doing a postcard. Uh, Ry Hickman of Mono Whisper is doing like a fashion lookbook. So there's a lot of cool like add-on rewards to this Kickstarter campaign. And so... It's really neat stuff. I mean, basically, like, it is just, you know, kind of a reimagining of Unico. But I think it's interesting because, you know, again, it's Samuel Sutton, the writer of this. He also adapted Wolfwalkers. He did the graphic novel version of that. And Guru Hero, of course, you know, was the artist of Superman Smashes the Clan, which is, like, a great comic. I love the art in that. And has done a lot of other great, you know, art and designs for other places. So, yeah, I mean, I like Unico. And I think this reimagining is really interesting. I think, like, all these artists that they got involved in this project is really cool. I definitely want to check out, like, uh, the picture book and the mini comic and all that cool stuff. So, yeah, it's just a really cool campaign if you're a big fan of Pesca and want to see, like, this cool collaborative reimagining of the character that involves, like, you know, Western comic book artists and mangaka alike. So, yeah. Uh, this campaign is going on until the end of the month, basically. So you will have until early June, June 2nd, until this campaign ends. So plenty more time to contribute to it. It already met its funding goal and is in stretch goal territory right now. So... You know, it's gonna get published. But yeah, if you wanna be a part of it, you wanna get your own copy of the book and your own copies of like, you know, the prints and all the add ons involved in it, definitely it's worth conveying because it seems really, really cool. Now we're going to move on to some movie news. And, you know, this is a film that, you know, we've been talking about a lot <laughs> over many podcasts. Of like, oh, here's some more news about it. When's it coming out? Oh, it was going to come out in. It's been rescheduled. Well, now we've got a new date for it, Colton, if you want to lead our discussion on this. Yes. So Dragon Ball Super, Superhero, once again, a film that we have talked about time and time again on this podcast. We're both very excited for it. You know, after the big Toei hack that uh, basically messed up their schedule on everything from movies to their TV anime, Dragon Ball Super Superhero is now being rescheduled for a June 11th release. I'm assuming that is just a Japanese release. I don't know that's supposed to be international. Yeah, I think it's only Japanese. I don't think, I mean, if it's going to be international than I imagine Sony. Funny Crunchyroll would have uh, made an announcement of that, but I think they're going to have a little bit of a delay. But I would imagine that we can hopefully see it in July or August based on previous turnarounds. Like Broly was a four-week, three to four-week turnaround. So I could imagine it, it also depends on like the release schedule of the summer movie season. So I'm sure they want to release on the weekend with as little competition uh, or direct competition as possible. I would be surprised if we didn't get this movie by the end of August. Yeah, I think we definitely will see a one month turnaround. I, I can't imagine a longer wait for this. Even other films like My Hero Academia One Piece, at most with the last couple of movies, we've only had to wait like six to eight weeks. So. We should get it soon or later with Dragon Ball for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, st- still excited for it. Can't wait to see it. Yeah, no, I mean, I am very, very keen to see it. 
you know, it's going to be fun to see a Dragon Ball film in the theaters again, especially in the summer. So yeah, a lot of fun. And, you know, Toei, they're working on a lot of big franchise films right now because they're also doing another Sailor Moon set of films. They're going to conclude the Sailor Moon Crystals adaptation with another set of films to adapt the Galactica arc, the Stars arc, and they're calling them Sailor Moon Cosmos. And these will come out in Japan in summer 2023. And yeah, I mean, I love the Stars arc. It is perhaps my favorite arc of the original series. Uh, Galactica's a great villain. The, the entire concept of the arc is great. So I am keen to check out the film adaptations when they come out. Uh, part of me hopes that they could get shown theatrically, but I'm sure the Netflix deal might still be in place. So regardless, though. I am just keen to watch these because, you know, I think the teaser visual looks great. I think the trailer is very nice. So, yeah. And I think Eternal was a was a good step for the adaptation in terms of look and quality. I don't think it was as good as Crystal Seasons 3, but I still think it was pretty well-done adaptation. So I'm looking forward to how the Star's arc is going to be handled. Now, speaking of other, like, classic franchises getting new film adaptations, there's going to be a new City Hunter film, which, I mean, the last new City Hunter film was Shinguku Prop Eyes in 2019, so this is pretty soon, all things considered. But yeah, it's going to celebrate the anime's 35th anniversary. The trailer looks pretty cool, good style to it. And, you know, yeah, like, I'm very, very keen to see how this new City Hunter film will play out, too. Like, the last one was pretty much, like, super celebratory, like, fan service of, like, celebration of the characters. But maybe this one will be, like, you know, we got all that out of the way. So now, like, they just tell, like, a really interesting new City Hunter story. So I, I'd be keen to see how it turns out for sure. And, you know, we were supposed to get like that Shinjuku Private Eyes theatrical screening. That didn't ever really pan out. It showed it some cons before going direct to home video and Blu-ray. But maybe this one we could see get a theatrical release here in North America. At least I think that'd be cool. And hey, I mean, we were talking about Golden Conway earlier in the show, but Golden Conway, you know, the manga might be over, but the franchise is still very much alive because there's going to be a new live-action film based on Golden Conway. That's been greenlit, and so we don't really have any more details about that. But yeah, Golden Conway live-action film, I can definitely see how it can translate to live-action. Uh, <laughs> it'll be pretty wild, uh, depending on how much they allow themselves to dig into the grotesque and obscene. So I definitely would be keen to check it out. It's one of the few manga adaptations I could actually see working in live action I, I i would actually be willing to give this a chance for sure now speaking of live action film projects though i believe we touched upon this before that a live action Voltron project was being shopped around to various different studios and recently deadline had reported that amazon is definitely in the talks to acquire the rights to the project to the live action Voltron. so yeah i mean if that holds true if they do end up picking it up you know i imagine might be a direct-to-streaming thing. But yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see just how the live-action Voltron project is going to manifest. The people attached to it are interesting, so we'll see how it'll translate. We'll see if the project really comes to fruition, if it ends up going to Amazon. Now, on the subject of films and films going direct-to-streaming or based in streaming deals, you know, Netflix has been making a lot of news about 
cutting content, unfortunately, especially cutting a lot of animation content, which is very frustrating. But they are also inking deals to get more licensed content and more exclusive content from the anime world. And they've made a deal with Studio Clarito for a multi-year deal for three anime films from the studio that will be exclusive to their service. And one of these new films, the second of these films, is going to be Tomotaka Shibuyama, who directed A Whisker Away, uh, doing a new film for them that'll come out in 2024. And we don't really know what it is yet, but the teaser image just shows like some kids walking in a snow-covered landscape and leaving some footprints behind. It looks quite cute. And it looks like a very charming, soft, inviting style. So yeah, I am keen to see how these new films from Colorado that are going to be on Netflix are going to turn out. Uh, the first of the films in this deal, Drifting Home, is going to come out on September 16th. That's going to be directed by Hirosu Ishida. And yeah, like this is like Netflix's first multi-year deal directly with an anime studio that produces full-length films. So that's pretty interesting. And this is also part of their new anime creator space initiative that they claim is going to help creators develop conceptual art. And the the new film from Tomotaka Shibuyama, the general vague premise of it is going to be a slightly mysterious love story set during one winter that's going to feature an unusual description on the everyday and depict the delicate emotional coming of the age of the characters as an boys and girls. So, you know, just kind of a quaint little rom-com in a wintry setting. And yeah, I mean, I like Colorado's style. I like their aesthetic. I like their films. So I'm definitely keen to see more of theirs and seeing how this deal with Netflix pans out. Next, we got some announcements of some shorts that G-Kid is going to stream in theaters this year. Now, the first of these is Summer Ghost, which is from the illustrator. It's like a directorial dispute of the illustrator, a law draw, who did illustrations for One Future Pancreas, Jose the Tiger and the Fish, and Vivi Florida Eyes Song. And it's based on an original story that was done by the Iwant Teacher Pancreas writer. So, I mean, I really like, you know, Yoros Humanos by Iwant Teacher Pancreas. Both of the movie adaptations I saw that I'm keen to check out the model. And so everything I've heard about this as well has sound very interesting to me. But yeah, like this is going to be released sometime this summer, both sub and dub. And it's a generally short movie. It's like about 40-ish minutes long. So it's also going to be screaming alongside a documentary that's going to be about the production of the film. And there's also going to be additional special content, though they haven't specified what that special content is as of yet. But it may be the next short that they're also planning to release in theaters, Deiji Meets Girl, which originally premiered as like a series of 90 second episodes on various like programming blocks in Japan on various stations, the super animism block that aired on multiple different stations. And so it was 12 90 second weekly episodes that cognitively is like about an 18 minute short film. And yeah, like this is, you know, about like a girl who one summer is working part time at like her family's hotel in Okinawa and then meets a mysterious U2 came alone to give us a hotel guest. And then it's like strange things happen around them, like fisting around the room and stuff like that. So it seems like kind of a quaint like little fun, like fantasy, invades reality type story. And it looks quite cute. It, but what's interesting about both Summer Ghost and Davies Girl is that they're both very much from artists and directors, filmmakers who are very much inspired by Malakoto Shinkai, you know, very much emulating their style, inspiring by his style. So, you know, Ushio Tozawa, who directed uh, Davies Girl, you know, 
worked as chief animation director for Shinkai on Place Marvels in the early days. And so, yeah, like it's it's going to be interesting. Like thematically, I think this would be an interesting to pair together, but they might very well just be released separately. But regardless, you know, these seem like very interesting short film anime projects. And I'm definitely keen to check them out in theaters when they are released there. Now to talk about some new anime projects to look forward to. This is a big one. This is a beloved manga that I and many other people have been enjoying for many years. And it is finally getting an adaptation. And that's Witch at Atelier by Kamomi Shirama. And we don't know too many more details about the anime as of yet. Other than the fact that you know, it's been greenlit. But, you know, I'm super curious to see how they'll be able to replicate, you know, Kamomi's very distinct, very detailed, beautiful uh, illustration style into anime. But if they do it properly, it'll be a gorgeous, gorgeous looking show and so i am so keen and interested in seeing how it'll be adapted and it's a really great manga so i'm very keen to see how it'll translate into animation for sure so what you're saying is we should cover the manga on the show sometime well absolutely i've enjoyed the series for quite a bit now and so yeah i think it'd be definitely fun to talk about it perhaps around when the anime comes out or just whenever we can get around to it because it is a fantastic series Mm-hmm. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard very good things. Oh, it is indeed like worthy of all the praise that has been given. Well, in terms of just how beautiful the art is, but also Shirama's storytelling and the things that she explores about art, things that she explores about like identity and that sort of stuff. So it's very, very interesting. Very, very good. Now, talking about sequels to beloved franchises now, we're going to talk about some that... You know, uh, a lot of people are very excited for. And this one came in as a bit of a surprise. And that is Shaman King at the end of the, you know, final episode of its adaptation uh, announced a teaser, showed a teaser that showed Hannah and promised that there's going to be a new Shaman King sequel anime. And presumably it's going to be like an adaptation of Shaman King Flowers. So, yeah, I mean, that's a real surprise. I don't think we were expecting them to do a Shaman King Flowers anime like after concluding Future Shaman King, or at least not immediately but hey i mean i'm down for it i'm interested in it and we'll see how it'll turn out yeah see i didn't even consider the possibility of um because i mean there's already so much shaman king manga i wouldn't be surprised they would if they're trying to like animate all of it and make like an anime universe out of it kind of thing i mean there's certainly a lot of manga there so yeah they can really sustain the franchise in terms of anime adaptations for a long time to come I could see it now. Like, I feel like Netflix in the future is just going to be home to the Shaman King anime franchise. Like, I feel like I could see it. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely enough of it to consistently make, like, new installments of it every year for sure. So, yeah, if they want to keep the Shaman King franchise going, which is like, hey, a new adaptation every year. It's more a new character, a new part of the universe. Why not go for it? But also announced getting a new season is Fire Force. Of course, the manga recently concluded and indeed a season three has been greenlit. I don't know if one more season is going to be enough to cover everything to the end of Fire Force. But regardless, I mean, they're making more anime of it. I'm definitely keen to check out the rest of the series through the anime because I think the anime adaptation is just like really well made in terms of like animation, in terms of how it adapts the story generally its weaknesses are basically the weaknesses of the manga in terms of like the fan service stuff and the plotting stuff that was already weak in the manga but like when the manga improves in the storytelling you know the anime which already had like great production quality you know it just lives up to it so yeah i'm definitely keen to see the rest of the story animated for sure now, sadly, we have to talk about a very sad piece of news that, um, unfortunately, voice actor Billy Kometz, who is probably best known for 
many great roles like Josuke in Diamonds Unbreakable, Gallo in Premiere, Naofumi in Shield Hero, and Rui in Demon Slayer. Unfortunately, recently he was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. Uh, he had a lot of pain recently, had trouble going to the bathroom, keeping food down. Um, so now he's been going through therapy, uh, chemotherapy, radiation therapy. He's got, you know, some doctors looking after him. He's been hospitalized, but he's out now. And he's like just kind of moving home, uh, moving to Pennsylvania to be with his family, you know, just take care of himself and his health. So he's taking a break from voiceover work and uh, other actors are replacing him for his ongoing existing roles. So our hearts and thoughts go out to him. This is a very scary thing. In his video where he talks about it, you know, he's trying to be very positive about it. He's trying to be like very uh, reassuring that, hey, you know, I'm going through a tough time right now, but, you know, uh, I'm being optimistic about it and I'm going to keep moving forward. And so, you know, I, I really appreciate that. It's like clear. I, I, watching the video, I really did feel like like there is like a sense of like you know it is a scary thing, but like I, I appreciate that he's like just trying to to be strong about it, and you know I I really feel for him. I really feel for his family. I, and I, I just wish him for the best for him and, and his recovery and like his fight against uh, the cancer and that he'll be able to bounce back from it. And so you know, I just our heart it's some thoughts go out to him. In addition to like th just making the announcement, um, he also set up a coverage with some friends of his, like a GoFundMe for himself uh, that will be donating resources for people to help, you know, support him financially, you know, as he, you know, is fighting against the cancer, you know, paying for his medical costs and stuff. And, uh, you know, obviously he's not able to really work right now because of the cancer. So like this is hugely important uh for him to have like just the access to like finances and not have to worry about it so he can pay for his treatment pay for his costs so if you can support to this gofundme and help him out as he's uh you know fighting cancer like that'd be i think really important really helpful make a big difference and so right now they've raised about over one hundred twenty thousand dollars of their $150,000 goal. So they're getting close to meeting the goal. So a few more people helping out, um, I think could really, really make a difference. So yeah, if you, if you really have been a fan of Kometz's work, uh, his roles and stuff, or generally, you know, if you just empathize with the guy and his, his fight against cancer, it'll definitely, you know, show him some support and just keep him in your thoughts. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll definitely be leaving a link to that GoFundMe in the show notes for anybody who wants to donate. Absolutely. Now, in terms of other stray pieces of news, just also talking about like people, but in more positive respects, uh, or with more positive news to talk about. Editor-in-chief of uh, Shonen Sunday, uh, Takenori Ichira, resigned from Chicago Con recently, and they resigned to write manga, which I think is pretty interesting. So, you know, this guy has been long part of the Chicago-Con editorial department, but now they are going into actually writing like of themselves. So I think that's very interesting. Yeah. So I'm curious to see what their manga will turn out to be, whether it will be published in Sunday itself, <laughs> where they were formerly editor-in-chief. And yeah, I'm curious to see what a manga written by a former manga editor, much less a former editor-in-chief of one of the big shonen magazines, is going to turn out to be like. And other like kind of 
Interesting and also fairly uplifting news is that the author of Cherry Magic, Yu Toyota, has like donated like part of the film adaptation rights fee that she received for you know the film rights for her manga Cherry Magic to Marriage for All Japan, an organization that advocates for same-sex marriage in Japan, and that's really. Wonderful gesture that, you know, already we know that like these adaptation rights fees are a big amount for a lot of mangaka, like in the grand scheme of like how much they make, but they, they're still a huge source of income. But that they made the choice to, you know, donate that fee to an organization that, you know, advocates for queer rights, same sex rights in Japan and same sex marriage in Japan is really meaningful. And they wrote that, you know, they hope that our society can become a place where people can love each other in the form they desire regardless of gender. So I think that's a very sweet sentiment and very, very sweet gesture. Now, in terms of like people receiving accolades, first is a piece of news that Hideaki Anno has received Japan's medal with purple ribbon, which is an award that is given to individuals that have contributed to academic and artistic developments, improvements and accomplishments. And yeah, I mean, considering Anno's body of work, definitely he's made an indelible, unquestionable impact in Japanese media and Japanese pop culture. So for sure, like definitely, he's very much deserving of this accolade. And similarly, if she were to be nominated or inducted, Motohage would be very well deserving of being inducted into the Eisner's Hall of Fame. She has not been inducted yet. She has been nominated. This is the third year in a row she's been nominated. You know, of course, with her body of work and with her influence, she absolutely is a deserving inductee if she were to be chosen. But of course, out of the 17 nominees, only four are going to be inducted. And it's stiff competition. You know, she's up against Larry Hama and Grant Morrison and Casper Sabardino, Jim Shooter. There's a lot of really uh, incredible people that have also been selected as nominees for the holiday this year. But Hagio is pretty much one of the only non-American comics industry people who are, who are nominated for the holiday this year. It's to say nothing about the fact that she's like, the only woman I think that was that is among these nominees. So I think she's more than deserving and she definitely should be inducted. You know, maybe third time is the charm. Like it took Takahashi a few times to get in. So hopefully this will be Hagio's year. And that about concludes our news coverage for this episode. Once again, as you mentioned before, there was a lot of news in the past month. So we are saving a lot of that stuff, including the NPD book scan report for this year, as well as other list news and licensing news for our next news episode. But I think it's time to say goodbye to the news and hello to Goodbye Ari. Six and a half years ago, on my 20th birthday, I was given a snowball microphone from my parents, and I was told, Hey, you don't have very long to live. I want to hear you record everything going on in your life and what you love, and release it in podcast form. And now, 200 episodes of podcasting and technically a lot more because of special episodes and other podcast series later. We are here at the end of the final moments of where I must give my own passing dying words and have that be recorded for prosperity so all of you will remember me.
Oh, uh, no, fuck that. I'm running away from this, and we're gonna add explosion effects! Serious, reality, sad stuff! That isn't what we read manga for! We read manga for the fantasy and the fun! And we certainly had a lot of fun on this show over the years. No, I am not terminally ill, and I'm not dying from sad. Anime, yes, thank God. girl disease. No, I am fine. But in a way, you know, podcasting, our thoughts on manga, these past 200 episodes, it is a chronicle in some ways of our lives, a record of our lives, leaving behind a piece of ourselves that other people will listen to, remember us by in years to come, perhaps even long after we're done. <laughs> if somehow, decades in the future, people will go back and listen to the <laughs> Podcasts on manga. But that is kind of the interesting about art, is that it is a record leaving behind both a piece of yourself and leaving behind a record, an imprint of your subject that you are recording rather as audio or in video form, especially in video form and in the case of film. Oftentimes, these pieces of art really behind. They are going to be how people will see and remember you for a long, long time to come. And that is kind of the magic of media in some way, a magic of this art form of not just pocketing, but also film, especially. And that's the subject of the comic that we're going to be talking about for our 200 episode that really digs into and explores these things. Goodbye, Airy by Tatsuki Fujimoto, which is a volume-long one-shot, just 200 pages dropped all at once. And it is a phenomenal work. And we just knew that because of the themes explored in this series that it would be just a great subject for a special milestone episode like this. And what better way to celebrate such a milestone, celebrate discussion of such an interesting title, than having on some of the friends and colleagues we've met and cultivated relationships and friendships along our podcasting journey with us up to this point. We are once again, of course, welcoming back to the show, Maxi Bernard of Friendship Effort Victory. That's me. I'm here. You are here, and we are so glad to have you here, as we are so glad to have Sakaki, host of the weekly Shogakukan edition, Talkback, Twitter, and blog, and a co-host of many podcasts, including Saturday Night Shockey. Hey, it's good to be here. If for nothing else, those intros. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, yeah. Much like the films you can make, it really is coming up with these things as you go, and then just editing, creating a narrative of it all after you've got it down, really. And that's kind of the, the secret of any creative work, is that, you know, it's a lot of experimenting, it's a lot of just coming up with stuff to say or do, and then in the magic of the editing phase and the magic of the post-production you create a narrative out of it and then you create like meaning out of that narrative and nothing as high fluid and happens on this podcast most of the time where we just talk about our thoughts and comics <laughs> that certainly is like the magic of a lot of other art forms especially film which is you know you film a bunch of different scenes you film like a bunch of different ideas and then you create a narrative out of that in the editing just from like all these hours and hours of footage you really narrow that down succinctly into a curated amount of clips that tell your story 
And in some ways, that's also the idea of behind manga production. Like, behind what we see published, there's hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of rejected draft pages or scribbles of ideas that were jotted down before we get to the finished pages that have all been assembled together. And it's super interesting to think about art in this way. And I think Tatsuki Fujimoto is a mangaka who thinks about art that way. And really thinking about the creative process behind art, both the spontaneous angle, but also the evolving creative angle and the collaborative angle. And of course, one of the real joys of doing this podcast is our collaborations with our friends, with other great folks in the manga and anime critique space. And that's what I really enjoy about it. And I think that's what I really enjoy about Goodbye Area and Look Back. It's a lot of just celebrating how media can bring us together, how art can bring us together in an appreciation of it and in the creation of it. Not, not, not to get too into hyperbole, but uh, I didn't read this immediately. I, I read it like a day or two before we started recording today. And man, I gotta, I gotta be honest. I think this is like... This is like peak comic storytelling. Like, I haven't read anything like this before, and I really can't say that about a lot of comics I read. Like, it's... I I was telling everybody ahead of time that, like, I have more feelings than I do, like, coherent thoughts. Like, after I finished reading this, I I just thought about it for, like, another hour or two, which... You know, when I usually read most things, not that I, like, immediately forget them, but, like, there are very few things that, like, leave an impact on me like this, like... I don't know, man. Comics are just good, and Fujimoto is exceptionally good at comics. Yeah, Fujimoto, in both this and in Look Back, he really puts some real raw feelings he has about art, his love of art forms, comics, manga in the case of Look Back, film in the case of Goodbye Airy, and his relationship to those mediums and to the people that he has shared enjoyment of those mediums with. And truly, Goodbye Airy, perhaps even more so than Look Back, is comics as visual storytelling in its purest form, in its four-panel structure on every page, and in how, using that structure, Fujimoto really hones in on specific moments of time and just minute details and actions and movements. In many ways, a lot of Goodbye Airy reminds me of a storyboard, which is appropriate considering that it is about, in its subject, film and that type of visual storytelling. It is just incredibly cinematic in that way. But in terms of the sequences in the comic, Refugimoto is just really keeping your attention on a scene. And minimally, there is movement between every panel as you just look at the same shot in the sequence of panels. And there are multiple page-long sequences that just focus on the specific moment in time and just setting us in that space and just appreciating the passage of time, the little movements that happen in that space, or when there is no movements at all, as also happens in several sequences, including a very lengthy 8-bit sequence, where it's just one shot of a window in a hospital room, and you see a little bit of an IV there, and it's just one shot, this one panel, is repeated for 8 pages straight, just adorned with text balloons. And not only is it cleverly economical, but again, 
It really does get across that idea of setting you in place in time and really appreciating the movements that are just happening in a space and also just the movement between panels, the movement between different moments of time as panels are, of course, you know, just snapshots of moments in time. Like this comic and its perform in its structure really just draws attention to that, just draws attention to how time passes between each panel, between each frame. And that's what I... A really, really just remarkable thing artistically about it. Mm-hmm. This one shot actually heavily incorporates uh, more of a particular technique that I really enjoyed in Look Back. Because I want to say that uh, when we covered Look Back on the show, I brought up how some of my favorite moments in Look Back in particular were just those scenes of uh, Fujino constantly working on her manga and how Fujimoto uses his paneling to kind of like uh, let the reader know like how much time is passing and I you know that th- that was a sequence from Look Back that I really really enjoyed and I think that's a technique that's incorporated so much in this one shot because you have a lot of moments in Goodbye Airy that just kind of like have you sit in the moment and you know it's it's just interesting to see how Fujimoto uses his brilliant paneling and sequencing uh, to show you like how much time is actually passing through the lens of, you know, characters like, you know, filming these moments and whatnot. Right. But in that sense, that was in a macro level of seasons changing, long stretches, we're checking back in, her in the same position at her desk, but the environment around her changing. What's so interesting about Goodbye Airy is that these are very small moments in time, like just incredibly minute. There are no big swings between panel to panel in many of these sequences, but really just seconds of a time, like a scene at a dinner table. Just we spend multiple pages just watching in silence these characters just eat their meal. That was my favorite part of the entire comic, yeah. And we just really focus on like these small, minute moments, these small kind of scenes in which the characters are interacting and spending time with each other. But we stretch that time. We have multiple panels to denote that, hey, we are spending a lot of time just focusing, immersing ourselves in this moment in time and just really paying attention to every small change that happens in this moment or to the fact that there are no changes that we can observe, but we're still spending in real time, time in this space, like in that eight page, like hospital scene I mentioned earlier, where it's just this one panel repeated for eight pages. It's just, we don't know any of the action that's happening outside of this frame you're seeing, but we are set in this moment in time and just left to dwell in it for that long to appreciate just how long and just how immersed that small moment is in the grand scale of our protagonist's life. And of course, in the narrative of the story, as we'll get into later. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lum and I have been kind of going on for a bit. I really want to hear what Maxi and uh, Sakaki have to say. If you guys just have any like general thoughts on Goodbye Airy before we like head into like story stuff eventually. Uh, Okay, I'll go first. I guess I wasn't going to actually read this thing until I was invited on, <laughs> so I should start off with that. So nobody's going to get some weird biased opinion from me, uh, for people who probably do or don't know. I don't actually like Fujimoto's, like, I haven't read Fire Punch, but I don't like Chainsaw Man. But I like to look back, and I like this, too, just because it has this kind of, without going too much into the story, it has this kind of dreamlike quality that this verisimilitude that I just love. <laughs> like Right. It feels like the kind of thing that you'd you'd hazily you'd wake up and remember hazily 
Like, it's hard to tell what parts of it are like, again, trying not to go into the story itself, what's real and what isn't, but it definitely has this, I don't know, and I'm, like uh, Lum was saying, I, I'm definitely a fan, especially in shonen manga, of when the author uses the artwork to tell a story more over, because I feel like shonen manga especially can get bogged down by text. So I really like it when a shonen author can just like let the pages tell the story through the artwork, especially the minute sort of changes, which um, Oda, not that one, does and Komi quite often. <laughs> so I, I can't not say that. <laughs> yeah, it is very visual storytelling focused, but absolutely to your point, the comic really does explore the difficulty of delineating between fantasy and reality in constructed narrative particularly in the narrative of film as a subject. And yeah, it really blurs the line between, well, what actually happened, what did happen, and that does give it, as you say, a, a dreamlike quality, because in many respects, so much of the story is artificial, it is constructed, it is a fantasy. And it's funny you mentioned blur, because like that is one thing that Fujimoto uses a lot of to kind of replicate the idea that, you know, this is all being filmed. Rather yeah. than mm -hmm. it happen in that too lends itself well to the dreamlike quality of the story because it's like okay he's filming this but how much of it is something that he's seeing versus something that was edited into a film that we are seeing so I like that push and pull of like what am I seeing versus what is actually happening yeah and aesthetically I think another thing that adds to that dreamlike quality is the very clever visual trick that Fujimoto does of just like overlaying character line art to communicate this idea that the camera is shaking and so the image of the person being filmed is also shaking alongside that it's just such a very clever trick just to use slight blurring slight overlapping line art to communicate that kind of sensation music and movement as well as very clever camera angles to also get the sense of a handheld camera like moving about mm -hmm. can i say something real quick that might potentially be kind of eye rolly but it is something that like because i i read i read this again right before the show like i've read this at least like twice because i liked it that much and i really wanted to go back and like now that i had context for where the story went like see if i could pick up on anything um i genuinely think that this comic does a better job of what Joaquin Phoenix's Joker tried to do in terms of like trying to warp the reality of the character and what they're perceiving to be happening and therefore uh, warping the perspective of, you know, us, the audience and like, you know, what we're seeing as we read the comic. I'd have to revisit Joker to recall those moments. The Joker specifically, it was just one of those things where it's like, okay, whatever this guy thinks he's doing is clearly not happening because I like, I, I know like how fucked up he's going to end up being or whatever. Like the movie never really did a very good job with me in particular of like convincing me of that. Whereas I feel like with this, there are times where like I genuinely couldn't tell like where the story was going or like what was actually happening, even though... Uh, again, I won't say anything specific, but there there is a point there is a point in the story where Yuta in particular just like you know he he's coming up with the he's coming up with an idea with uh, for a movie with Ari, and in a way he kind of like just describes like what hap what happens in the rest of the comic almost, and I don't know it's just kind of interesting because it's like. 
I just think uh, this comic does a really good job of blurring the lines. Like, it, it was really hard for me to tell, like, you know, what was actually happening and what he was, like, perceiving. Like, I, I just think this did a better job of it in particular. But it's also two different mediums, though. So, yeah. <laughs> well, the key difference in perception in the cases we're describing here is that in the case of Joker, it is the self-perception, the perception of this character of the world around him and how he sees and frames his own actions. Here in Goodbye Airy, it is kind of a deliberate choice to frame and create a narrative out of these moments in time that as we come to realize in the film that Yuta is making about Airy has in its entirety been all constructed. The version that he has created, these moments are not truly authentic, but it is a way to create a narrative about this person and about this experience and circumstances and have that be the version that other people see and relate with and remember, rather than reflect what is actually happening. But in the case of Yuta, he is very aware of the fact that he is constructing a narrative. But even though like he is aware of the difference in his own head, what is being shown by and seen by the audience is going to be remembered as like the definitive version, like, oh no, this is who this person was. This is how these events and these experiences actually happen. When in reality, that isn't the case. And ultimately, Utah and only one other person and really know the difference at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, Maxi, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in what you thought about this in particular. I, I find it so funny the way that this work is being talked about. Because we're talking about the narrative as you should construct it within the story and how we learn it really is, which is in the most clear way to all of us as readers, that's not really what it is. It's the narrative that Tatsuki Fujimoto is telling us and what we're extrapolating from what he's telling us. Like, it, this isn't, it is a comic about films. It's about documentaries about the way we present information, the way we remember people, especially through home videos. Uh, it is so, so about comics. It is incredibly focused about being about Fujimoto's own comics. And a large part of that is it's to do with the sincerity of form, is you know what you're told. A twist or a silly moment coming out of there doesn't detract from that sincerity, which is something you get told almost immediately from the start, because it's, why did you put an explosion in that film about the tragic death of your mother? It's like, I put it in there because explosion's fun, and it's like, why is why is Chainsaw Man dealing with all these very serious topics, or what's behind the door? But also, here, let's kick someone in the dick for five minutes. It's yeah, like, it's, try, try, it's trying to explain to people that you can be David Lynch and Michael Bay as the same person, <laughs> and that that's fine, because it's, yeah. at no point, at no point is it truly, truly disingenuous, ever. Uh, this goes through the story, and it, it drops at one point, it goes to tell us, hey, the way we've presented this story so far isn't the case. But because we know that what is being presented to us is continued fiction throughout with several different potential cutoff points, we don't necessarily know that that's the case either. But the message makes us choose to believe it's the case, because it's important for us to think about how we remember people who die. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes the part that we choose to believe is the truth. Even though there is no truth, it's a comic. And it is 
obsessed with this to the point of the form. Uh, when we talk about the sort of people who experiment with form in comics, we're usually talking about uh, David Mazzucchelli on uh, Asterius Polyp. Um, people might know him as doing Daredevil Born Again if you're like a Marvel head. Uh, you think about Chris Ware and his entire body of work, like people who play with what comics look like. But I think the more accurate example to look at, and I, I think it's very important to look at, is Dave Gibbons on Watchmen. Watchmen is restricted to a nine-panel grid the entire time, and it uses that nine-panel grid to very carefully tell its story and how it presents information and how you look at information and how meaning is created on the page. It is, to this day, the most popular and formative work while still being incredibly experimental in how it does it with this very rigid form. Uh, that's literally what's happening here. You are playing with a four-panel grid, a very typical four-panel grid, which means a lot to manga and also to Asian narrative. Um, we have the Kishoten Ketsu, which is the four-step narrative structure of a lot of storytelling in, in Japan, in China, Korea, all sorts of places. And it uses that, even though the page isn't necessarily structured on very clear narrative beats because of how it uses the infinite space of the gutter, which is a comics thing. You have the gutters in between, the space in between the panels. Yeah. Anything can be happening, and that is what it's telling you. While you're off the panel, what's happening? All the stuff you don't get to see. You don't get to see who Eri really was. You only get to see how she's presented, because it's all in the gutters. It's all hidden away. And that is a, a stunning use of the comics form. It is far beyond what anyone would ever normally bother doing in, not to denigrate it at all, a Weekly Shonen Jump. Not because Weekly Shonen Jump is somehow lower, but because it's incredibly mainstream. And it's super rare for a mainstream publishing place, even if it is the website, even if it is Shonen Jump Plus, to be this willingly and openly experimental in a way that could risk massively turning off readers. Especially because, yes, it reuses art a lot. People people hate the webcomic Control-Alt-Delete because it's shit, but also because it uses a lot of copy-and-paste art. And this does the same thing. It reuses art frequently. It uses some frankly wonky computer effects to create those blurs. Like, it's using some cloning, which is... Which is fascinating, but it works because it fits the entire storytelling method we're being given. And I'm, I'm aware I'm rambling on a bit here, but I'm I'm stunned by how well it uses these things. How well it does at being a comic that talks about Fujimoto's career, that talks about the sincerity of stories. That um, oh, it's and again, still has an important emotional core outside of anything we necessarily know about Fujimoto or his creations by being about how we remember people. Yeah, there was a lot you hit on just so seemingly and, and beautifully. I mean, we've been focused a lot on the textual level, but yeah, <laughs> no, you did a great job going into the meta text. Yeah, please don't apologize, Maxi, because this is exactly what I was looking forward to from you in particular. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. Like, I do absolutely love how Fujimoto played with the format he presented here. And you went into great detail with, like, you know, the historical, like, significance of, like, using this format. But uh, just in terms of, like, how he plays with the gutter particularly, I love how in, there are many sequences that the speech bubbles will blend with the gutter, particularly in sequences where Yuta is off screen. I love the indication that he is off screen by having his speech bubbles blend with the borders of the panels and the gutters to indicate that he is not in the frame. 
is outside the frame. And it teaches us that as a reader immediately, because one of the first things he does is turn the phone camera back on him. You see the speech bubbles return to pointing at him, and then when they turn away, they're back to the edges. Like, as a, as a training tool, it's right there at the start, so you understand why they're connecting to the borders like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also love during the beach scene, where Ari is being filmed on the beach, that all the speech bubbles are blending in between panels and the gutter to indicate, like, this dialogue, everything that's being spoken is happening in between these moments in time, connecting these different moments and spaces together. It's beyond stunning that something like this managed to, AA managed to come out, like, as a fully formed 199-page product, like, just out of the blue. Um, Japan isn't necessarily anti the idea of the, uh, the, for lack of a better phrasing, original graphic novel. Like, you, you do get some things that get published straight as volumes. But this, it's still very rare. And very rare for, again, again, a mainstream publication. And, like, that this was just... I, I think Fujimoto was even talking back in France a few months ago about the next idea after this. Yeah. Like, without even revealing that this was coming... And then it's just like, oh yeah, I've also just finished this. <laughs> this took us by surprise because we thought that his next work was going to be, as he mentioned in that, his femme fatale focus story. But no, this was something he really did develop in secret and was very much a surprise by what it was about. But I have hope or I wonder that perhaps the success of Look Bag, which wasn't quite a full volume, but was almost there. It's like 140 pages. Yeah, I mean, they, they've turned it into one anyway, thankfully. Yeah, it was able to convince it editorial that hey Fujimoto is successful at telling these long form stories so we can let him do like a full volume length work and publish it. It could genuinely change how the manga industry treats comics that they've let him do this twice now. I'm so excited by the possibilities. Right especially because you know between look back and this, you know, is an eight-month-ish stretch of time that Fujimoto presumably would have been able to spend working on this. And it is just an interesting and hopeful thing that, yeah, perhaps the industry can change to a format in which creators are just able to be given a healthy amount of time to work on a graphic novel at a comfortable pace and then publish it. And that would be a thing that'd be more encouraging to see than, like, kind of the rigorous... You know, weekly schedule grind that a lot of creators have to put up with for many years at a time when serializing their work. It's a very interesting time for it to come out. Almost a year since uh, Gege Akutami was forced on to break because of what weekly serialization was doing to them. And as Yuki Tabata has just gone a break for Black Clover. For a minimum yeah, of three months, months. Yeah. Yeah. to recover. Man. And as Horikoshi has been taking frequent breaks after every chapter recently, Oda, of course, has always taken frequent breaks. And e- even, even on the broader time scale, Kentaro Miura died within the last year. I don't doubt it was, like, more complicated than saying it was... Yeah, there are probably other factors we aren't aware of, but a lot of his heart condition, you know, a lot of factors that cause that are because of overwork. Exactly, exactly. Overwork has such a big influence, and having this freedom to create single-volume original works in, like, a loose time frame, that could solve a lot. It's like you hear um, uh, Shigeru Mizuki... Uh, Mizuki. I, I, I know how to pronounce words. I'm awful. <laughs> uh, 
You see stories he's put out where he's been like, hey, I get rest in between work. I've, I've like tried to look after myself. And uh, all these other creators died young while they were pushing themselves to an extreme. And it's like, it's kind of glib, but you think like, yeah, when people look after themselves, they have much longer to create things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, agreed. And even when you, when you see that these creators are taking breaks and everything, like, I, I did read Tabata's um, commentary. He, it seems like they're almost being forced to. <laughs> like, I mean, I know we just said that with Gege, but like uh, Tabata's words were like, "Yeah, I wanted to keep going, but I." I mean, he said he consulted the editorial staff, and they said, "I mean, you can kind of read through the lines." And they were like, "No, you really need to sit down <laughs> and stop drawing mm-hmm. for a while." It's just something completely wild about the culture of the industry. It's like, hey, you gotta keep working. And it's like, no, no, please don't. Like, nothing has worried me more in recent history than watching, like, sketchy chapters of Black Clover come out and just looking and thinking, like, oh, no, I hope Tabata's not, like, working ill. And, oh, which is fine, because, again, none of that is even what Goodbye Aerie is about. But because it's such a, a such a singular work, it makes you think beyond any intended meaning because it's this this rare release yeah i i hadn't actually thought about the deep implications that maybe perhaps with this if fujimoto is able to like from what i saw loopback was pretty you know well received it sold pretty well and if this does the same then yeah i hadn't thought on the level that he could pioneer this whole thing where authors just draw a graphic novel and put it out there and i mean i i would now that this discussion has come up i would like to see more of that honestly i mean in between works you just draw something like this um i mean yeah the instant gratification of having that chapter every week is nice but i would rather have my creators being able to rest because i don't know if if he had had to do this on a weekly schedule if it would have been as good as it is no i think it is just a labor of i I don't want to say love so much of just that it's a labor of something that he was able to sit back and think about how i want to proceed with this which is something you probably wouldn't be able to get if he had to adhere to a deadline whether it be online or in the main magazine well i i was thinking about this specifically with relation and and your film here sakaki with fukuchi Svasa, the the creator of many wonderful series that we both love yeah but specifically with uh with uh psyche uh matushitomo yes 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 which if that if that didn't have the necessary breaks would we have had this really good each volume is an arc except for you know the two that were like half an arc each we probably wouldn't have had that amazing structure if it wasn't for the the carefully implemented breaks Yes, yeah. I I mean, as a little bit of background, uh, Psych Matashitomo, um, it ran, it would run for a volume, then take like, uh, maybe like a month off. Like, this is on, but, I mean, the flip side of that, this is on the heel of an Agle Mole, which was like, I still believe is Fukuchi's best work that ended up never, like, never should have been canceled. It really shouldn't have been. I mean, from what he said, it was a decision that both him and the, but as I said about Tabata, who knows? He's gone on record and saying, okay, it was a decision between me and Shogakukan, and we both decided it would be better to let the work go. But yeah, that series, he had said many times, like commentary and stuff, that he was, he was having back issues, and, you know, and I think a lot of his assistants he didn't have as many assistants as he would have liked so Nagelmore went on break for like a year so I feel like bringing him back like in the sense for um Psyche 
there was a discussion on we you know he wants to create but we want to do it in a way that's safe for you i mean shokaku con overall not to uh, you, you should have known <laughs> freaking boxy and i on here that this is gonna <laughs> shift into a sunday talk <laughs> but I, I promise not to take too long with it um like yeah i i feel like shokaku con although they haven't done something like this they have been trying like You'll have we have there's several eight page series in the magazine. You'll have like stuff like Tony Kaku Kawaii and Komi that'll have like an eight page chapter like one week and then go to 16 the next week. And then it, it feels like it's a thing where it's like the author is allowed to, you know, hey, I only need eight pages to tell the story this week. And that's what they're given. You know, you had Shogaku Khan, you know, kind of pioneer the whole with Birdman, which started out weekly. Then Yano Tanabe couldn't keep up with the schedule, so they made it a monthly series and attributed, like, I think Alice in Borderland was also in the magazine monthly, and there was there was another series that I cannot remember. Oh, the the guy who doesn't, have, doesn't want to make friends. What's it called? Oh, yes, Yugami ga Tomogachi ga Inai, something like that. But yeah, those were, I mean, I feel like Yugami was more just a thing like, oh, it was doing super well, so let's have it more prominently displayed in this magazine. But it just feels like Shogakukan for a while had been kind of saying, we don't want our creators to burn out, so we're willing to look at alternative schedules. And I mean, like even Arakawa um, with Silver Spoon, you know, with her working with Shogakukan, the fact that it, the, I want to say the last couple volumes took like several years to come out just because, you know, she needed that time off to take care of sick family members. And I guess she, uh, she's doing Arslan, so. So that too but i feel like it is a thing that they have been considering this i mean now fukushi's done ponkotsu and is now doing golden spiral and i mean it seems like he's back to doing it weekly but even ponkotsu was like 10 pages a week it was like 10 to 15 depending on the week wasn't it yeah yeah it was it's not a set thing again it's just like it feels like the author can say i only need i need this much because even psych could run 18 to like 25 pages per chapter based on it in the last couple of volumes it was like 20 page chapters consistently oh and even like uh even daiku which sells maybe five copies <laughs> a month uh like whenever mikiteru kasaba like says oh i need a few extra pages this chapter because i can't tell the story this way like they just go yeah sure you're just running to 23 pages this week so like it can work both ways yeah i mean kimiwa 008 they're actually celebrating it running 24 page chapters for an entire year <laughs> so. what the hell <laughs> I mean, I, I, su- I suppose, I suppose, when you can't draw, it doesn't really matter how many pages you use. Oh my God. That's mean. He he can draw perfectly well. He just chooses to do weird shit. Yeah, but like, I, I just find it amazing that they're celebrating this, though. Like, I I feel like in the last, I mean, it's reached its two hundredth chapter recently, so that's one reason why I celebrate it. But they've actually doing a countdown of like we're almost at a year. I think it's like three chapters away of being a year of just twenty four pages. They used to just add, they used to advertise it like any other series. Where it's like extra pages this week. Look forward to it. Then they stopped, and then now they've just been doing this and. It's very strange. It's both endemic of just the fact that Sunday's just so short on series, although they're slowly making up for that, and just, yeah. But I, I'm, I, we went really far with it. Watch as I do the job of pull, pulling us back to Goodbye Airy now by <laughs> saying, like, what this really shows, I think, is that the industry has been changing, and that I think Goodbye Airy in particular may represent an actual endpoint for some creators that are limited in what they can manage on the current schedules without risking their health. And that feels like a really positive thing. 
Should we perhaps bring in our fifth member? <laughs> yeah, once again, crashing the party, surprising us on the podcast with a spontaneous <laughs> appearance out of nowhere. Yeah, we, we had no idea this was going to happen, I swear. B-Lord, <laughs> I'm glad of you to finally arrive as if you have been here the whole time and not have in actuality woken up late to the call and joined midstream. <laughs> yeah, actually Vlord was was here the whole time. We just we just didn't film any of his parts. Yeah, we we deliberately edited out all sections where he said stuff so that we could have this moment here. No, I mean that is the the magic of editing podcasts, you know. There could have been things said, there could have been comments by Vlord this whole time. But we cut them all out, we edit them all out, and now only we are going to present the idea that he's here and he's on the podcast to talk about this. We're trying to present the listener with the possibility that V-Lord is perhaps too tired and oversleepy and it's creating a narrative where now we have to think like, is there something wrong with V-Lord? And at the end we'll reveal the big dramatic thing where they are an explosion. We we edited all the the sleepy parts out to show only the best parts of Elord, you know, so that yeah. he will be remembered for the best of himself. <laughs> remembered as awake. <laughs> You guys are puffing him up, but we all know, and we all discuss this, V-Lord lives in the gutter. So he's always just been in the side. <laughs> That's right. He's always been hidden in between these moments of us talking. You know, he's in the gutter of the podcast recording. <laughs> Welcome, buddy. <laughs> hey. Hello. Yes, this is all part of the master plan. I totally did not sleep at 5 a.m. and then set five alarms and oversleep through all five alarms. <laughs> Uh, now this is really all a part of Miyazaki's Ghibli conspiracies and he got to you and that's why you were late you know you were held up by him because he was interrogating you for us exposing his subliminal messages throughout his movies and now he wants to prevent us from extrapolating the teens of Fujimoto's work for some reason maybe undermine his hegemonic domination over Japanese pop culture I mean I was watching Comey last night so maybe it's Comey's fault <laughs> oh, we were just talking about Sunday, so maybe we're on to Sunday. Okay, here you go. I mean, you're also up late reading the new Zatch Bell, right? So. He heard you say anime is good, actually, and that, that set him off. Yeah. <laughs> no, no he, hearing us praise a comic, you know, he can stand for that. No, not mm -hmm. at all. Especially something about movies. It's like, no, these movies... They're not real. They're not about real things or whatever he'd complain about. Yeah, no. Uh, I'm 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 glad V Lord made it and totally. It. I mean, no. Wait, he was here the whole time. I forget what the narrative. I I'm forgetting what the narrative <laughs> of our podcast is now. But that's the important thing because if if you forget, you can just go with it. You know. Well, here V Lord, we're we're still kind of in that phase of the of the show where we're still kind of talking general thoughts before we talk about anything specific. So, like, do you want to just talk about how you feel in general about this one shot? Just like how you felt coming out of it like what what do you think of it in general oh it was god tier amazing yeah i, loved it. I mean i agree <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i guess like uh one thing i found interesting this is something like i kind of realized after reading is that like it definitely encapsulates a lot of like just the themes that really fujimoto excels at like i was reading fire punch last weekend a lot of his messaging in that and themes are channeled through film like mm -hmm. film represents like the afterlife in that there's constant film references one of the supporting characters is literally filming fire punch as he like goes around 
Yeah, and film as a motif also reappears in Chainsaw Man itself. Yeah. In the Genji Makima dating chapter at the movie theater. I wonder if Tatsuki Fujimoto likes movies. <laughs> oh boy, I wonder. Is it possible? It's like, because even outside of explicitly like mentioning films, there's so much stuff where you you feel the influence of certain filmmakers or directors in just like structural storytelling and themes that you're like, oh yeah, no, Fujim- I you I could bet money that if you were to ask Fujimoto what's preferred between films and manga, it would like it would either be perfectly fifty fifty or it would go towards films. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> literally, one of the main villains of Fire Punch wants to just make a Star Wars sequel. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of wonder if, like, if he had the opportunity to do it, like, uh, I'm of course I'm going to bring it back to Sunday, but only a little. Like, Haru also has retired from drawing completely and just likes, he just finds writing to be his passion. So I kind of wonder if, like, at some point, Fujimoto would just be like, you know, manga's fun, but I want to just direct the film. I could see him make the leap to director in the same way Otomo did. I would love to see this as a film. I would love to see someone take this on, it, whether it be animated or live action. I would love to see someone try to turn actual film into this. Like I mentioned, the structure of this feels so much like a storyboard in the breakdown of moments in time. Not exactly in the focus of like just strong gestural movement like most storyboards would, but like in terms of just the breakdown of beats, it is very filmic. It is very cinematic. So I could very easily see it translate to film. Now, I'm, I'm sure Moxie is about to interject, and I also would agree with that it is so much <laughs> ingrained in this format of its comic storytelling that it is just created with that medium in mind first and foremost. So, like, yeah, like it, you know, it is perfect for its format. It uses its format very purposefully. So, in translation to film, you know, a lot would be changed about it, but I can't lie and say that while I was reading it, that I could not imagine this being a filmed work. I could totally see how this would look and work as a film. Oh, yeah. That, that was very, very tactfully done there in the, Lam, you have successfully quelled my wrath. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was fully ready to go back to my usual trade about how adaptations like unless they fundamentally change what the work is just aren't any good so suck that anime nerds Mm -hmm. um i don't know why i pointed on my microphone like they could see that (laughs) (laughs) but no i i I think you're right i think if you if you were to hand this work off to someone who is a filmmaker perhaps even in the same vein that i think fujimoto is someone who is a comics form experimentalist who is obsessed with film. I think if you handed this as a film to someone who is like a director who is obsessed with comics, if you gave this to Zack Snyder, no, no, sorry. <laughs> if you handed this to like a good version of Zack Snyder, that's mean, Justice League is okay. Oh, don't get um, the Snyder cut fans on us, Maxi. No, I, I I hate to admit it, I actually really like the Snyder cut. Uh, it's, it's like the only one of his superhero films I've watched. Sure, but the Snyder fan base is uh, very... Yeah, I'll, I'll quote well, Watch out, Maxi, you're not on the Patreon anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you handed this to a, a filmmaker or a group of filmmakers, because obviously it's a, a much more group-based activity yeah. than comics, mm-hmm. where you can still work with one person alone, uh, I, I think you could have... Uh, a group of them who are obsessed with comics create something that does the flip side of this and it would be just as engaging because it, it's fascinating how it's about one thing while being made in another thing. Yeah, and it's so interesting because right now in North America, a film whose subject matter is very similar to this. Not exactly, but very similar in its love oh, of Oh, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. <laughs> no! Um, I was about to say this is a movie that 
Sakaki Viewer, I all watched it at ANYC, Pompo the Cinephile. Mm. I was gonna mention Pompo, yes. <laughs> uh, another manga about creating movies and community forms through the relationship between people creating these movies and a shared love of movies. And also the struggle of editing, crafting, and narrative out of these different snapshots, moments in time. Like Pompo the Cinephile is a great companion piece to Goodbye Airy. They operate in similar ideas, similar appreciation for film and the community and relationships and narrative created through film. And also, Pompo the Cinephile is so interesting as a, of course, adaptation of a manga about that and translating that into actual, you know, film cinema really, really well in terms of taking adaptational liberties and properly retuning the format of the comic. The narrative is told in the comic for a film, including the addition of additional elements and story stuff and characters and stuff. So to me, it's a very interesting example of like, well, hey, here's how a narrative, a manga about film can be turned into a film very successfully. I don't know if, like, necessarily the same team that did Pompo would be able to do Goodbye Airy similarly, like, in terms of stylistically, their strengths. But, you know, they did a great job on that film. And I think that that shows that I think a comic about film and a comic that's still very much a comic first, like, in terms of how it chose to tell a story in the form of comics, can be translated into film with, you know, very smart liberties and very smart understanding of the different narrative tools of film as compared to comic. For sure, for sure. Do you think an adaptation of this would be best if it was done by the guys who did the uh, Hellshake Yano flipbook <laughs> stuff in Pop Team? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, it'd be certainly like, very creative. Yeah. But, like, that that's the sort of thing where I'm thinking, like, what, what would be the most extreme way of just completely trying to mess up translating a medium? It's like, do all that, but have it shot as a film with, like, dramatic angles and cuts and stuff, but it's still fundamentally drawings from a flipbook, uh, it, like, in static motion, with people making noises just off camera. Oh, it'd be amazing. And you maybe would lose some of the heart-wrenching gut punch that comes, uh... As, as we learn the truth of Eri, or the, the quote unquote truth of Eri. God, I've made this messy with what I said earlier, <laughs> didn't I? Uh. <laughs> I really couldn't help but think about one cut of the dead after reading this. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Oh, I want to see it so bad. Okay, I, I don't, I, I won't say I, anything I, then. I hear amazing <laughs> things. Do not. Do not spoil I won't, it because I won't. people keep saying <laughs> I, I will get to it. I promise. Have you guys? Because like, obviously you've had like the, the Mavericks at movie things. Have you guys done one cut of the dead yet? No, I don't think we ever got a chance to see it. I don't remember when it got a theatrical run here. If it did, it, it might it might be one worth doing as a special DVD because people are obsessed with it as like something where you don't tell people what the deal is. Okay, here at the very least, whenever you get around to seeing it, maybe we'll do like a special thing on the Patreon at the very least because I, I will I would love to hear what you think about that film because One Cut of the Dead I think is like the closest to like an actual film equivalent of this where it's like you think it's one thing but it kind of ends up being another. This is my first time hearing of it, so oh, man. now you, caught oh, you me guys got you guys got to see it. <laughs> Just in terms of narrative twist, or in terms of like how it like plays with the medium to mislead the audience. I guess kind of both. So I don't think it's a spoiler thing, but it's my understanding that it does the same thing as Hitchcock's Rope and like tries to present it all literally as like one long continuous shot. Oh, okay. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Kinda. Yeah, like I, I, I was under the impression that that was a part of it, um, but that's that is the only thing outside the realm of spoilers. Mm-hmm. 
So also like Birdman, but Birdman, of course, is like not technically actually like one continuous thing. They actually cleverly oh, cut. Oh no, no, I mean, neither is Rope. Right. Like Rope would do the clever thing where like uh, someone would walk in front of the camera and in that single moment where the screen is black, they've gone, chop, new roller film. <laughs> yeah, very clever tricks like that. Side note, if you really like Tatsuki Fujimoto's comics work, watch Alfred Hitchcock's films. That may not seem like an immediately comparable point, but 100% his entire body of work, there's there's little... You can taste little bits little bits of Hitchcock in there, you know? Yeah, the psychological thriller elements of it. And, and just, just the, the, the experiment the, with format. Yeah, the look, like the look of shots and yeah, yeah. the experimentation that Hitchcock did. Yeah, totally. You could see that reflected in Vujan's work. It might in very much very way be an, an influence on him. Oh, I just, I just want to like. So it's worth mentioning as well. I, the, one of the the closest thing I have to like an adult qualification is that I have an A level in film, which is like the the qualification you'd get, I guess, before university to you guys so mm. i guess like a, a high school thing maybe i don't know i'm not very intelligent i'm not oh. but i don't often engage my film brain uh not the youtuber my actual <laughs> brain that thinks about film but like i would there's, there's one thing i would really love to do when it comes to meeting a mangaka and talking to them it would be meeting masakazu oi and talking about big fat titties <laughs> but as a second one <laughs> I would really love to... He's, he's got a problem, look. Uh-huh. I just want to understand him. Uh, Tatsuki Fujimoto, I would love to sit down with him and just talk about films, because that is... There's so much there that I find fascinating as a film fan. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. God, that would be really cool. Oh, God, I just sincerely call myself a fan of something. I am getting that. Oh, man. Um, I guess before we, uh, I don't know if there's anything else we want to say, but I mean, I think we all pretty recommend that people really should read this whenever they have the chance. And that I think if you like good comics, please just read Goodbye, Aerie. Please read any of uh, Fujimoto's stuff. Just go go check this out. Like, you won't regret it. It's so good. It's a very compelling story just on the pure character and narrative level. And then there is just a lot to peel back and extrapolate in terms of broader theme and message, broader context of the story in the scheme and overview of Fujimoto's work and the development of his ideas, a broader exploration of just the form of comics and kind of how Fujimoto is playing with that. And also, there's just all this kind of meta text to it that you can extrapolate about, like, this being another comic about himself and his own creative process. And he sees that in the same way. It's like back, his relationship to an art form and what he loves about it and what he finds so appealing about it in the same way. So there's a lot of different aspects to approach the story, a lot of different ways to enjoy and interpret and take away from the story. So it is a really fascinating work. Uh, it really is a work that, as we mentioned before, represents some of the best qualities of comics, which is what made it such a great topic for our milestone episode. And so it is a hearty recommendation, I think. It is like a work that absolutely, even if you don't necessarily emotionally connect as strongly as we have, I think that you'll come away with a lot to have taken away from because there are so many different levels on which to appreciate the work. 
Mm-hmm. I genuinely think this comic does give you a lot to think about. Like, no hyperbole, or I should say, I, I don't want to like totally overstate this or like overhype it, but like honestly, like the more I thought about it, because uh, I always like to give things scores because that's just how I like to quantify things in my brain. I gave this a 9 out of 10, but like, depending on how many times I read it, it might end up getting a 10 out of me. Like, I actually really like it that much, and I think it's just that good where I... I don't think I really have, like, too many criticisms of it, and, like, whatever criticism I had, like, the more I kind of went back to, like, go through it and, like, screen cap pages I wanted to talk about and, like, take notes on it for the show, like, I think any criticisms I had of it, I think are pretty quelled at this point, like, I... I think there were some moments where I was just like, man, I don't I don't know how I feel about that reveal. But the whole point of the comic is that, like, you have the power to remember things the way you want to. And you have you have the ability to leave behind whatever legacy you want to before you die. Like, memory is a powerful thing. And I don't know, there was just so many messages about involving that kind of thing in this comic that, like, really resonated with me in particular. Like, I don't know, this... I, I will say I like this more than Look Back. I might like it more than Chainsaw Man, but I, I admittedly, I do need to do a reread of Chainsaw Man before I say anything concrete. But it's it is very close to being possibly my favorite work of Fujimoto's. Like, I, I just love it that much. So like, I, I have to kind of offer the caveat when if I because I, I, I openly rate all the manga I read because I need to use Analyst for something, you know, <laughs> and I have a very, a very carefully thought out five star system. I, I've got like 90 completed things I've read where I've rated them five stars. That kind of makes it seem like I give it out willy nilly. So I clearly need to create another tier, but this is the very definition of a five star manga, 100%. It achieves everything it needs to it. It does exactly what it plans to. It's kind of weird. I don't think I can necessarily compare it to Look Back because I don't think this would exist without how people responded to Look Back. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if we talk about how Look Back was changed after it was initially published. Which I, I think this is, in some ways, a direct response to that. But we'll probably get to that in a second once we get more nitty gritty. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's make this the point where if you don't want to be spoiled on the specific reveals about this comic, uh, this is probably your time to dip out. Thank you for listening to this. And uh, so, yeah, I guess, is there any any particular moment of the comic that we want to talk about that like stood out to us in particular uh so i want i want to hop immediately on what i was just saying because i'm 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 dying to i'm absolutely dying go ahead go ahead Uh, let it loose so i don't think this would have been creative without look back doing the somewhat controversial thing of basing itself so much in the kiorani arson attack and how it presented like an almost comical fantasy solution of dealing with this fictionalized version of the arsonist in that instance with the killer with a weapon in look back people responded to that so some thought it was in poor taste like maybe it was too on the nose before it was doing it. so things got muddied a little bit especially in how uh it simplified it was to present things like uh, mental illness and such in that way but i think that's a big part uh, along with how people responded to whenever Chainsaw Man was being deeper, I think, of how Fujimoto has now turned around and gone and said, okay, here's this incredibly serious, sincere, emotional thing where it's like, hey, we're initially looking at this incredibly sad thing of a son going through his mum dying, filming every moment. Then when the moment comes when she's dying, when it's finally there, he runs away. And then boom, big explosion. But not just that, because obviously that's the big silly one and the thing he gets immediately criticised for. 
literally criticised for by his uh, peers and critics when showing it in the story, which you can't get much more on the nose than that. But the little bit spread throughout, it's like, don't film me pooping, don't film me bathing. It's like, hey, look, there, there's jokes in here for what is a very serious thing, because that is life, and that is definitely, definitely home movies. Yeah. Which are, and again, this is so much about home movies. Because it's, uh, you know, you have those silly moments in real life. And I think people being critical of having silly flights of fancy or fantasy in previous work is definitely reflected here by having an extended conversation between Eri and Yuta that's literally like, hey, that's not so bad. The explosion was good, actually. I like the explosion. It was really good how after Power got shot in half by finger guns that there there was then a very silly bunch of stuff with a hamburger, you know? (laughs) Like... It it's very very explicit in those terms. Yeah, no moments of levity in narrative are you know very important contrast to the serious stuff, but also in just the grander uh, idea of the story. Like yeah, like one thing that the students so misrepresented, and what like I think so many of the critics of look back and how Fujimoto chose to imagine his protagonist in that you know have this cathartic moment of beating up the killer of her best friend who is the stand-in of the arsonist the Q Annie incident like it was a expiration of this one thing that they seem to miss is like it was an expiration of kind of the grief the personal grief that Fujimoto was feeling this feeling of frustration and like just this desire for that cathartic kind of moment of like being able to affect change on a situation that, you know, ultimately he really doesn't have the power to actually change what happened in reality, just how he can choose to interpret and depict it. And so like that's kind of reflected here in Goodbye Arian, which what all the critics of Yuta's film misunderstand is that he puts inclusion in one because he is just you know, very interested in the fantastic, you know, even as a kid, he was always interested in taking the real and making it surreal, like drawing his dad's face to the dragon's face and stuff like that. But also, like, having the explosion there, having him, like, run away at the end of the movie from his mom in the hospital, uh, you know, it was a, it was in many ways him putting a lot of his grief in there, like his desire for the situation to literally just blow up behind him. Or even that it's just, it's a, it's a bombshell of a moment for them to have to deal yeah, with. Yeah, you know? it's just like a complete, it's him rejecting that situation by running away from it, by blowing it up behind him. It's meant to be kind of that cathartic expression of him, of like wanting to escape having to confront the reality of like his mother's death. And the students all think that, oh, this is so disrespectful to his mom's uh, memory and his legacy. Not really thinking about, well, maybe how you chose to process his own grief over his mom dying his own guilt perhaps of like you know actually running away then it was to conclude that scene in the narrative to have the explosion behind it and i think that's like what a lot of people can miss about works that try to explore very you know heavy themes very personal themes through the lens of you know kind of silly abstract ideas and fantasy elements is like no these are not meant to take away power or like to mock the enormity of these situations or of these feelings but these are just a ways of expressing and processing and interpreting how the artist has subjectively 
felt about them, how they have viewed and interpreted about it, and have a sense of control over how they choose to engage with these feelings and with these moments that they are exploring through their work. Yeah, it's kind of Fujimoto creating like a legion of strawmen in a way, but I think it does tap into a lot of the actual issues with uh, those criticisms, which is that they didn't understand the work and they didn't understand the creator, which I think are the two bits that people often miss. It's like when you look at overly literal interpretations of things. If if you watch a Cinema Sins video, Mm -hmm. if you watch a four-hour video about how Twin Peaks is about TV, like you, people who miss the emotional through line, the, the stuff that's below the surface level that makes it all make sense. It is very surface level. It's just, oh, this is just like completely action-based observation. Just observation of like, just purely like, oh, this happened, but this is wrong because this shouldn't have happened. It's not really thinking about it in the context of the overall story and thinking about it in the context of like what the artist what the creators are trying to impart in terms of their message or in terms of what they are trying to communicate. And that's kind of what is was completely missed in Yuta's first film in the story is that they didn't think about the students didn't think about this from the idea of, hey, you know, this kid, he's asked by his mom when he's 12 years old to film her pretty much every moment until her dying death. They're not really thinking about, like, the narrative he's trying to tell through that story and what he's trying to say about how he felt about that situation in the ending. They just completely take things on the surface and not not trying to really understand him and what he's trying to say about himself through his art. Yeah, at worst, they just think it's like a terribly placed, like, bit of levity, like, oh, like, what is this doing here? I don't know. Bit of tonal clashing going on here. Right, and that's the heartbreaking and frustrating thing for an artist, is to put so much of yourself in your work, uh, put very personal things in your work, and to have those ideas be dismissed or misunderstood, and be told, hey, you should change this, this isn't working. You know, but not from an understanding of, hey, I understand what you're trying to say about yourself, about your, in your story. Here's how you can communicate that idea better. Just purely like, hey, I didn't like this. This is not appealing to me because I don't like what you've done here because it makes me uncomfortable or I just don't find it interesting. So I want you to change it because of that and not really trying to understand and appreciate the artist. And that can be very hurtful as it is very hurtful for you to, to put so much of himself in this film. And then just have that be completely rejected. And I speak to that from the sense of a filmmaker myself who had similar experiences. Man, you guys are making me really feel bad for not liking Chainsaw Man. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> you should feel bad. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Because I'm kidding. like a lot of the reason why I don't like it is basically what you guys were saying, which is the levity. I really do. I actually made myself this morning say I'm not going to discuss this because we're not talking about Chainsaw Man. But here we go. Like, I guess I. Not that I want anybody well, to. Well, I think like, entertainment-wise, like, I think subjectively, like I, you're are totally in your right. I think anyone is totally in the right to not like. Yeah, yeah. A oh piece yeah, 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 no, no, yeah. I, I definitely, I'm not saying I, I, I'm not saying necessarily that I'm being attacked. I just came here to have fun, and I'm being so attacked or anything. No, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> I, I do, and like I'm just saying it from the point of view of like that's. A lot of what you're you've actually pinpointed a lot of why I don't like Chainsaw Man is because of the like. I don't know. I, it feels like you, you had a serious moment and then you had the levity. And while I get like from what you're from, you know, what you've said, I get that that's just 
not just, but that's the way that Fujimoto's like that how the characters are dealing with it, or how Fujimoto wants to, puts himself into the work. I I also am just like it doesn't work for me. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, this is this is kind of what I was trying to say when I was saying that he's currently strawman for it. Because I think the one thing that Fujimoto may miss with these critics in this story is that some of them could understand why the decision was made. They can understand everything about it, and they can still think it's bad. And, like, I think that is perfectly valid because it's understanding why the work does it doesn't necessarily make it good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will say the only, the only criticism that I I could not stand for Chainsaw Man and Dan Dadan and so many other series, right? And I, I think I think I may have actually talked to you about this on Twitter at one point, Sakaki, long, long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, long ago. But it, uh, when... I want to say it was when you were reading through a bit of Dan Dadan or something. Is there's nothing that I hate more... That when people talk about Chainsaw Man and they go, oh, it's so random. Yeah. Because <laughs> it is an in- incredibly, incredibly deliberate work. Everything within it is incredibly deliberate and thought through, but it's not necessarily presented in a way that makes that clear to the reader. And that was, it. oh, it drives me mad to this day. And I'm dreading when that anime comes out. <laughs> I am dreading it. Because I know that is what people will say. I'm dreading it for entirely different reasons, but yes. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I will say that I never... I think I do remember this. Yeah, I... There are a lot of things I can say I, I didn't enjoy about it, which I'm not going to state here, because that's not the point why we're here. But, like, random, no. I, I definitely don't think... I. There is a method to Fujimoto's madness. It's just the method just doesn't work for me. That's something that really impressed me with your criticism, was that you, you stayed away from that point. The things you didn't like about were... I, I I think a lot more understanding than just surface level, like which is always something that I I generally respect with when pals don't like something I like is I know for the most part you'll actually think about why you don't like stuff. Yeah, and I like yeah. and honestly I like looking at stuff that I don't like just to see like from a. The- I don't write much, but from a writer standpoint, I like to see okay, but this resonated with somebody somehow. Like why? Even if it's a thing that I got, I gained absolutely nothing from, and I, I want to know why it resonated with someone else. And like, yeah. as far as Chainsaw Man goes, like, I get it. I do. Like, I've had Colton, V Lord, and Marion all like not necessarily shill the series because I. And again, like Maxi said, I'm <laughs> I'm really glad that I have a group of friends like you guys that will be like, yeah, this is good. You should, you know, I really like this thing. And I'll say, yeah, I'm not. I'll be the you know Buzz Killington will be like, I <laughs> didn't like that thing. When none at no time will you be like, well. Uh, you suck. How could you not like this thing well, that well, we well, like? Well, not to your face. <laughs> yeah, I'm I mean, kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, Colton, Colton, what are you talking about? You will totally do my face say, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, like, yeah, it's it's like, no, I, I do understand. I do get it from what I've read. I mean, and there are some things about Chainsaw Man that, I mean, I've spoiled myself on the series because I was like, I don't really want to read it, but I do understand why people like it. And I do get why people like it. It's just like, I guess, for me personally, it's just just i guess it's just because that that push and pull doesn't work for me i like i like going in i like going into the work 
And I get what the and I mean, it doesn't help that I'm super picky on characters. So I definitely know 100% though, it's not a thing with the series. It, it, it really is that old cliche go to which is it's not you, it's me. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, it's definitely that but going back to the goodbye area and look back I did like both of those just because I and maybe it is just because that they're like long self-contained works compared to like Chainsaw Man where it's a thing where it's like a week to week thing and even if you are to read the whole thing in one go it's like obviously there are different arcs there are different characters like these are like look back and goodbye area are very con- they have their cast you know there there aren't new additions to it the story doesn't change you know there's not like another arc where it's like something completely different so it's like it's you're able to like absorb all of the thing and then it's over and it's like oh okay this is what this story was alluding to even and i just feel like i guess to me and this is very presumptuous to say but i guess to me i just feel like fujimoto does better with these kind of like concentrated stories and maybe that's why he's like as much as people are like where's chainsaw man too he just keeps doing this instead <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i could definitely understand just me like i mean yeah i have this work that everybody wants me to do but, but i mean like i'm having much more fun just telling these self-contained stories where i'm able to put a lot more of myself into them because i have time to sit down and plan them out like um not time but like that i'm able to just one and done them like in a way where and I and since I'm not working on another thing because like as far as Chainsaw Man goes even though it's a character based series obviously you have to look at the plot too I mean the plot of Goodbye Airy and Look Back is um I mean I won't not so much plot but like they're very very personal stories and I feel like just that is more what Fujimoto's like strength is but I've only read 17 chapters of Chainsaw Man, so I probably am really speaking out my ass right now, so... I mean, look, right, if you, if you don't end up appreciating Chainsaw Man by 17 chapters in, then that's a perfectly fine yeah. point to tap out. It's, it's like when people expect you to read to volume 9 of One Piece. If it's not working for you by then, then, like, you shouldn't have had to have read that far. That's a big ask of someone. You, you, yeah. just, have, you just have to watch 300 episodes of Gintama before it gets good, I promise. <laughs> oh, if Maxie's pet peeve is people saying something's random, that's my pet peeve. It's just like, well, don't read something, don't ask me when something gets good. You're, then you're not reading it on its own merit. You're just, yeah. yeah. You want to have a thought piece on this thing rather than enjoying it. Like, it yeah. shouldn't matter. I mean, I understand that's longer series, and I'm going to rant. I'm going to, I promise, not too long, though. I understand that, like, <laughs> a longer series like Conan or something, that's a lot of time to sink into something. And when you're not sure if you'll like it, and I, I totally get that. But I, I just subscribe to the notion that if you enjoy something, then however many episodes it'll be it'll go be it'll go by in a flash because you'll be enjoying it so much it's just like oh i i watched 800 episodes of this already oh Oh, well i just really liked i wasn't even looking at the episode count but if you're just looking at something like oh i need to be able to discuss with my friends and have an opinion online about this thing (laughs) then yeah of course 800 episodes to have an opinion on something is a lot but again, and I'm not definitely not trying to talk down to anybody who is just like, I don't want to watch 1000 episodes of Conan or One Piece. That's fine. You, you shouldn't have to. But yeah, that's my pet peeve when people say that. And isn't it so much easier uh, when trying to do this to someone where you want them to go and give something a go, instead of saying it's this many chapters, it'll get good around them. If you just say, it's 199 pages, read the whole thing. If you don't like it, you've only had to read 
a single work. Like, you've not had to go beyond that. It's not too much of your time to take away. Like, hell, I, I read this in, like, 40 minutes. Uh, I definitely think a lot about, uh, about, <laughs> like, how it is with you and Chainsaw Man, about having pals who are very cool with when you don't like something. Because God knows I read 43 chapters of Witch Watch. I talked so much <laughs> shit about it. And I, I am right, to be fair. Uh, but... <laughs> in your in your own narrative you are exactly <laughs> exactly no nobody's <laughs> nobody's massively mean to me about it uh even though like i've had to be like no this series you all love i i don't even think it works as a comic and they're just like no that's cool that's your opinion we'll live with it and i'm just like thank you for not killing me <laughs> i mean to be fair i have the same opinion but let's <laughs> Boneless punk. I already read uh, Skit Dance exists. I didn't Boneless need another one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'd love it. There was some drawings in there too. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, can I can I talk about like just two of my favorite moments in this comic uh, real quickly? Oh, because yeah, bring it back, uh, Colton. <laughs> so um, I, I want to talk about two of my favorite moments in this comic because I think one thing I really loved about this work is like how much Fujimoto really captures like how real certain like interactions between people are. The first one I really want to bring up is um, when uh, Yuta and Eri are like kind of going back and forth between like hanging out at restaurants and like watching movies and they're bringing up like these things that they notice about each other how like Eri likes to give like a low key peace sign when like something cool happens in the movie they're watching or whatever. Yes. <laughs> and then she brings up how Yuta every time there's like a nipple on screen he's like oh yeah. Like, he, he has to, like, comment on it, and he, mm -hmm. he he keeps saying he doesn't do it, and they kind of go back and forth, until they get to a moment where it happens, and she, like, tries to call him out on it, and he doesn't remember the conversation, because it, like, it doesn't really matter, but also, like, he still asks her, like, well, hey, what did you mean by that? Could you tell me? Could you clarify? Like, he, he kind of gets, like, a little anxiety over it, and Ari has to, like, shut him down, because, like, she just wants to watch the movie. I've had interactions like that with my best friends before. Like, I've, I've never seen that replicated in a comic, like, that well before, and I felt a little called out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just like unconsciously doing this thing and yeah, she calls him out on it and he has no idea that he's doing it. And I and I love that. But she also doesn't like want to get into it because it doesn't <laughs> actually matter. Yeah. <laughs> and then like he's like, I can't watch the movie thinking about this now. <laughs> and and then the other moment I really wanted to shout out was uh, the moment where I think this comic does a really good job of kind of blurring the line with reality and and everything is the dinner scene with him and Ari and his father where you know they get into the, his father get his, gets into this whole thing where it's like hey look I'm glad you're hanging out with my son but I really don't want him to have to like go through the same thing he did with his mother and like going through all the trouble of like making this film like it, it really like ramp, ramps up like out of nowhere like from hey like I don't want him to do this to hey you need to get out of my house like it, it goes into like a real uncomfortable like one-sided argument and then it, it just turns out oh this is just a scene for the film and I was like uh, that actually like really got me like I actually thought like that was a real thing happening and I was like oh shit this is where things go wrong it actually like gave me a lot of anxiety and I, I thought that was really well done one thing that I really liked about that scene going back to it is that when you first read it you know and you look at the dad's facial expressions you could be oh these are kind of just like Fujimoto's kind of weird expressions he likes to draw for his characters sometimes but when you go back and read it and you see like the dad progressively become more expressive you can tell that he's trying to overreact 
to really sell the scene and sell the moment. And that is very funny. And also the it's very funny, just the page that is just pausing on the moment at the end of the scene where he has to hold his pose. But there's just one panel where he like opens his eye. To check if, like, is the scene done? And then he closes it again. This is very <laughs> funny. Just, again, another example of just pausing in, honing in on a specific moment of time, just letting us sit in the moment and just appreciating, like, kind of the small little <laughs> actions that happen during it that are just kind of minute and funny. You got to give him a good place to make, to make that edit. Yeah, and it's also so interesting with that scene is that, you know, we have, like, the fake kind of a speech that is given by the dad the fake conversation he has with Ari about this and then they actually engage in like a real conversation but as we are left to wonder like at the end of seeing the sequence of events in the comic like it was even this scene authentic was even this scene where the dad you know gives his supposedly honest thought of like you took creating this film at Aerie. Was that a really an authentic moment that just happened to be filmed? Or was that just a created moment in the narrative? So again, I like how the comic at every turn with the filming, the creation of this movie is just like really playing with your idea of like, well, what actually happened and what was reinvented for this film? Because we also know this entire beginning of the meeting of Yuta and Aerie that leads to him coming up with the idea to create the film must also in some way have actually been altered from what actually happened in reality because as we are told about Ari later on when Yuta confronts her other friend is that Ari didn't look all the time like the way she looked in the film. She wore glasses, she had retainers and her personality was also not quite what was depicted in the film because she could be very you know, as in this friend's words like bitchy, uh, very self-absorbed and temperate so it really does play with your understanding of like well did we actually ever see the real airy in any moment of this comic uh, any moment of yuta filming airy like even when supposedly we see him meet her in this comic and in the story and of course at the end of the comic the version of airy that yuta sees again is, of course, the area that had been depicted by him in the film. Because, I mean, that's the version of Ari that that Ari, all that's all she knows. That's all she knows to emulate and recreate in herself. She doesn't know what the previous Ari was really like in terms of the full uh, scope of who she was as a person. But, I mean, it goes again to this idea of like, hey, you, this is how we create narratives to choose to remember someone, especially through the tool medium of film, like the moments of time we choose to preserve, whether or not they are truly authentic or not. And you think about, you know, a lot of uh, social media influencing is all about like posting pictures of like these, you know, very extravagant moments or this, these very precious moments. But are these moments like truly like, spontaneous or that is staged. Sometimes you are left to wonder and question these things of like what is artifice and what is reality of the authenticity of a person in their life. And so in regardless though, that is how externally that person is going to be received 
and remembered. And in some ways, that's going to be the legacy that will be left behind. That's how they will be left behind to be seen when they are gone. And in many ways, it is kind of a very sweet thing to leave behind the best version of yourself for other persons to see and the version of yourself you want to be remembered by. But I suppose that one question that I did have is whether what Aries says at the end of the question, uh, end of the comic, rather... Do you find that ultimately completely like beautiful as she describes it, this idea that she through watching these this movie that Yuta made and seeing like just this version of herself that she was and then her time that she spent with Yuta? Is it really like just completely truly beautiful that her idea of reality and her idea of like the relationship she clings on to are all behind the screen and all within this movie and seemingly the way that she's going to choose to cope with living, cope with this idea that her existence is such that, you know, she will outlive any other people that comes in her life is just the idea that she has this one film to latch on to, to remind her of a version of her that once was, a relationship that once was. Like, is that, like, completely the optimistic message that we are led to at least through the character that is meant to be, or is it in some way perhaps pointing out that well, perhaps this is a very nice thing to leave behind. It's, it's very meaningful to leave behind this record. But is that truly a complete replacement? Or does it completely, like, substitute having a genuine uh, relationship and genuine, like, connection with someone and seeing all sides of them and engaging with them as a person in physical space and in reality? Because one way that I choose to interpret Yuta leaving behind Eri and the explosion of the house uh, that of the abandoned building that they watched movies in at the end of the comic is in many ways this is a once again uh, an expression of like a rejection of like a reality that he doesn't really want to participate in in the same way the first explosion of the hospital with his mom was him rejecting like wanting to confront the reality of his mother's death and not wanting to deal with that here I think he is like kind of very confidently, self-assuredly walking away from kind of a uh, reality he doesn't want to engage in himself. This idea of like airy being the same as like the fictionalized version of her that he had created through his film. Realizing that, you know, the area that he once knew really isn't really there anymore. Like this area isn't the area he knew. So he's kind of feeling content to leave her behind, leave this thing that he kind of, you know, been struggling in the years since Airy passed to kind of reconcile behind and feel at peace at that. It's like he kind of had gotten this closure, but he also has gotten an understanding that he appreciates intertwining the reality and fantasy, but ultimately, like, it is not the fantasy is not completely in the world of fantasy that he wants to involve all this time in in the same way Ari has chosen to at the end of the comic. I'm glad you kind of answered your own question because honestly, I, I was kind of confused a little bit about like what that final explosion was supposed to like communicate to the reader, honestly. It could also just be the silly thing of like, you know, he likes to infuse a fantasy reality. So like at the end of the story, like it's an, another explosion to indicate, well, wait, is this part of the story, like this post part of like Airy Dyke, was that also part of actually maybe the, the movie? Was this also actually 
actually reality? You know, it's also playing with that idea. But I do also have to wonder in the way that Yucha's final conversation with Eri goes, with the ideas mentioned in part, but also the choice that Yucha makes to, like, leave Eri and to... Like, imagine the explosion behind him. Like, what broader message Fujimoto actually also wants to communicate. Because it's clear, like, he does have a reverence for film, and he does believe in kind of the positive aspect and angle of, like, remembering the best of a person through these constructed narratives of home movies and videos and stuff of them that shows just the minute snapshots of a person's life. Not even all the big moments, but also, you know, the small silly moments, like, even stuff like, you know, filming someone (laughs) taking a shit and stuff. But, like, ultimately, I do wonder if he's also bringing up this question, do we want to completely engage and just completely... Uh, lose ourselves to the fantasy of constructed mirrors and of the artifice of like these snapshots without like really engaging and living in the reality of the present and engaging in all sides of a person because the person that Aerie is presented in the final moments of the comic is not the real fully dimensional Aerie that Yuta once knew it is just a constructed fictionalized Aerie. And I do feel that he has kind of a unease, a sense of unease in him looking at Ari and interacting with him. That sense of discomfort with that surreality and him feeling like, yeah, I, I don't want to actually engage with this and I want to walk away from this. And I, I feel fine with that, you know, seeing the actuality of like fantasy invade the world of reality. I think that I ultimately would like to engage in reality Mm -hmm. that's interesting because i definitely took that ending to be a bit more positive where it's like oh it's it's nice that we have you know the ability to uh record video of people because you know when they die that's kind of all we have left of them like it's it's nice to have something that we can use to kind of revisit them even if even if it's not completely representative of them entirely as a person yeah no i mean definitely he's communicating that message but the thing that gave me pause is again that's just the idea of of like the new area constructing her identity completely just based off of this media of this film like her entire personality her entire being is just revolving around watching this movie and okay i am basing my entire identity around this movie now and the version of me seen in this movie and not really allowing herself the opportunity to really uh, create a new identity for herself to form new relationships or grow or change she is like stuck in the past in this moment whereas you know Yuta of course has grown up and he has had all these other experiences and a part of him had always kind of lingered in the past of like his frustration of not feeling satisfied with the movie but I feel confronted with this idea of like a never changing past version that is not truly even representative of what even once was in terms of what the actual really who the actual area really was i do sense like fujimoto is trying to kind of blur our comfort zones of like whether that message is like truly universally something we should unequivocally accept as a positive thing or whether we also need to take a step back from ourselves and also take a step back from fantasy at sometimes to engage in reality lest we just completely base ourselves and base uh, our entire understanding of the past just on constructed narratives that only show one 
one side of a person or one side of a subject. Because, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, historical movies about people uh, that you could watch and you could say, oh, this is truly accurate or this is how this person was. Uh, even documentaries can present that side of like, oh, this, and because of the antecedency of like, oh, these are real moments. So this is how that person really was. But you have to keep in mind and remember, well, wait, you know, we have to also keep in mind that these are only just snapshots of a person. This is the narrative that is just being left behind by the filmmaker, or in many cases, uh, the intent of the subject themselves of how they want to be remembered. And it's not completely representative of the entireness of what a person was. And also, it's not completely you know, representative reality. So like, I guess it's often, you know, a nice thing to take comfort in the memories of a person, remember the best parts of them. But there is also a double-edged sword of that, of, well, now we're also forgetting kind of the entirety of their being. And if we really don't necessarily want to completely base our understanding of a person just purely on the constructed narrative that has been created. So what's interesting about this is that when I first read uh, Goodbye Eerie, I, I think I definitely interpreted the ending more like Colton. But after reading Fire Punch, I then flip-flopped over to what Lum is seeing. Because, like, one thing I realized about Fujimoto is that this is something that he's explored multiple times before. The idea of, like, okay, we have this depiction of someone, be it film or some other medium, but is that really their real self? And what are the ramifications of that? Like, there's literally, like, a rant about Tom Cruise in Fire Punch, <laughs> where he's like, okay, Tom Cruise is a terrible, awful person, but if you just looked at his films, you'd think he's super cool because of how the film depicts him. And is that actually the best way to see that person? And, like, they, they do this, too, for Agni as well, where, like, Agni's viewed as a god. Is that actually what he wants? And is that actually a good way to remember that individual? And I think, like, at the end of this, it's not necessarily trying to lean one way or the other, maybe, but it's bringing up the fact that, like, we can interpret and remember people based on, like, these films or how we want to view it. But it's also important to be conscious of what that means, that that's not just the reality of what happens, that's how we want it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a significant part of what's happening here, especially with the ending, uh, is trying to afford comics the same level of interpretation that people afford film. People do not often allow comics to feel as open-ended in how you're allowed to interpret scenes as films do on the critical scale. Uh, and this gives you so many is this doing this, is this doing this, this is what I've taken away from this sort of moments. Is Eri really a vampire reborn again to watch the old film about her and to become that person? Uh, or is that just a metaphor for understanding? Or is it even the dying throes of a man about to commit suicide because his family have died? Have his family really died? Is this real? Has he really grown up? Is this just part of the film being made? Is it all just part of a comic that we're supposed to go and decide how we feel about individually? It's asking us a lot of questions and giving us a lot of choices in how we perceive it and ultimately without being Fujimoto or Fujimoto giving a definitive statement we have the room to decide it's the the actual idea of death of the author of the interpretation of a work beyond its means not just deciding you like something because someone's a bell end that's not what that is 
And I, I think that's that's fascinating. I think it's a really brilliant thing about this work, and it it kind of <laughs> it kind of gives you so many points where you can decide this is the point where everything's fictional. This is a point where everything's fictional, and you just have to keep reminding yourself it is fictional. It's all fiction. <laughs> yeah. It's just wild. Yeah, and that open-ended like freedom of choice that Fujimoto leads to it is very perfectly befitting of the subject of the comic of like how we choose to remember someone, a person through film. Yes, uh, I'm. I'm gonna be a. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a bit of a downer here. I'm gonna relate to the idea we're presented with of how we choose to remember people for how they're filmed. Uh, learning that Yuta's mum actually was kind abusive. of abusive fame hungry and abusive and nasty yeah she was a tv producer who wanted yuta to film her because she was going to use that footage as part of a video about her recovery from this illness yeah to like be her comeback which is insane and i i think it's important that we do actually focus a little bit on how we remember people. Um, I'm going to do it in a bummer way, and so I'm sorry to the other four people in this call and anyone listening. Um, so, a good few years ago, my childhood best friend, they were born seven days before me. We had been inseparable through our childhood into our early teens. Uh, they killed themselves. They hung themselves. Uh, it had been some years since we'd even really met in passing or spoken to each other. It had been even longer since we were really what I would have considered friends. We just kind of grew apart and whatever. But and and, and they there had been things about them, thing ways they had changed, addictions they had have had, things they'd had to live through that I was aware of but had never had to be exposed to it in context of them as a human being. And the way I get to remember this person is as they were when when we were kids, especially because that's how we were filmed together. We are in countless home videos kept underneath my mother's television, uh, just absolute mountains of them that show us, again, as, as these innocent kids having fun together, inseparable people, and whatever we became, whatever led to them making that decision, I... I'm allowed, because of how I wasn't exposed to what they became or who they became, to decide to remember them as something they hadn't been for almost two decades. And I think it's important to be able to have that choice, because uh, without that ability to be able to editorialise how you remember people, sometimes it's uncomfortable and imperfect in ways that you don't want to have to deal with because you'd rather remember the good in someone once they're gone because of what they meant to you or because of what you had together. And this really hit home with that. I, I genuinely sobbed when those revelations were coming out in the story because it was intensely relatable to actual experiences lived and to experiences that will be lived in future. I think a lot about my Dad, this is, I'm sorry, this is the oversharing moment of the podcast, but I'm sure it will be interesting in some way. Uh, I'm, I'm on okay terms with my dad now. He's not the person he once was, and I think as time goes, he'll continue to be a better person who I'm able to relate to and who I can think of in terms as being an okay father. Uh, he used to be a 
terrible person. He has five kids. The the third one of us will never speak to us again. And frankly, what little hope we ever had of communicating again relied on the fact that one day my dad will be dead. Uh, he was a loud, angry person, not necessarily physically abusive, but we lived under a reign of terror during our young years. And obviously that's not documented in any meaningful way. Any videos we have of us with our dad are going to be the good moments because you don't film the horrible stuff. And when he's gone, that will create a, a complete narrative. Like the combination of how I'd have known him in his later years and how he's been presented in earlier ones on film uh, would create an image of someone who was much better than he was. And for, for some of my siblings, that will be plenty. They would rather remember him that way. But for others of us, I think myself as much as, as any one individual member of us are never going to be able to stop reckoning with the abusive piece of shit that my, my dad used to be because like we were old enough that we don't get to just remember it through the medium of home videos. Like we had to live it. It like I, I had to be the Utah presenting the image of the parent whilst everyone being like, no, but your, your parent sucks, you know, in, in ways I really won't go into great detail about, but like that's the other end of it. It's like, Hey, it's important to be able to remember people some ways, but also it doesn't remove who they actually were. And sometimes it's important to also remember that they suck or sucked in previous tense. And I, I think it says a lot to the quality of Goodbye Airy as a comic book, just to bring it back to reality for a second, that it's able to bring up these dueling concepts, the, the positives and the negatives of this presentation, in ways that I think highlight the good and the bad of it. Because you get to see and you get to hear about the ways people actually were, and whether it's a beneficial way of presenting them, where I think it's ultimately harmless to focus on the good, as it is with Airy, or if it just completely, completely sucks and creates a hard-to-deal-with fake reality of who the person was like it does for Yuta's mum. That was very powerful, Maxi. Thank you for sharing. I, I really want to thank you for sharing that, Maxi. Yeah, that was that was really powerful stuff. No worries. I, 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 I was mostly worried it would be quite self-involved, but I, I think it was the only way of adequately explaining the... I, I, I think... The, the word weirdly is it came up earlier. Skaki used it. It's the verisimilitude of what's presented here, like for something that gives us possible vampires and explosions <laughs> and stuff. At the end of the day, the believability of everything is there because it feels real because it taps into some very real things. It absolutely does. I'm literally going into my annie list right now and changing my score from a nine to a ten because I think I think convinced. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have guilted you through my own personal <laughs> sadness into liking this comic more. Oh, the real tricks I pulled. It was all part of your plan. <laughs> I admit, I'm definitely not a person who thinks about these things deeply, and maybe, I, I, I've said it from time to time, maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing. But definitely listening to everybody here, like, originally when Yuta's dad brought up the whole thing about his mom, I actually thought it was an interesting kind of parallel to Aerie's friend being like, yeah, she was kind of a bitch, wasn't she? But you're giving me something good to kind of go out on. You know, the last memory I have of her was actually kind of good. And the same thing with Yuta's dad, who was kind of like, yeah, she was kind of a bitch. But then I saw your video and I saw some of the good sides. And I mean, it. I feel like overall, you definitely piggybacking off of what you all have said. It's like every people are... You get both sides of a person. It, it, it's a complete kind of like package with somebody. Yeah, you're going to have the sides of them that weren't so great. And it is unfortunate that 
a lot of times if you're just looking through videos or memories or whatever of them that you're not going to get that side and then you had the sides of them where you probably may not have noticed that there might have been some good there. I'm definitely not trying to discount anybody who was just like, yeah, that person was an unrepentant bastard <laughs> and probably deserved to go or whatever. Oh, no, but like humans are complicated. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm trying. My rambling is trying to get at Humans are complicated. Because, like, yeah, I, me too. I mean, hearing Maxie talk about um their dad the way they did, like, yeah, I didn't have a really good relationship with mine either. Hey, to the same. point that I'm not sure if, <laughs> I'm not sure if he's alive at this point. I actually had, like, a health checkup where they were asking me questions. And they were like, okay, do your dad have any, you know, have any sicknesses or anything? I said, I'm not sure if he's alive. <laughs> and th- the the fact that, and I'm definitely not trying to drag down the show <laughs> I, I, I'm not like the fact that I have to say that is like it is it is a process like there were some things that were good about him but now I can say that kind of thing and kind of joke about it whereas back in the past it would have been really kind of like a spike puncturing a part of my cranium to even just think about it but now I can just jokingly say I don't know if he's alive or not and it is just that time that goes by as I mean as shown in Aerie too like I mean Yuta's been through a lot of stuff and you know as he meets up with Aerie again I, I want to believe just a little bit of him has I mean obviously he was a kid and running away from like you know what he had to deal with with filming his mom and basically being forced to like film this person's last moments and i want to believe that yeah even though he kind of resets himself a little bit towards the end where it's like okay my whole family has died in this accident and i guess once again i'm gonna go back to suicide which i don't want to downplay it (laughs) but the idea that he's kind of grown up now in this way but not changed much like his outlook on things has it's complex as maxi put it like his outlook hasn't changed but it has the fact that he was able to see this area and be like, you know, and, and through his expressions and everything, you can kind of tell he's like, hmm, I don't know how to feel about this. And, of course, going back to the ending itself, is the explosion just... I read that whole thing as just, like, it, it's a running... Again, I don't think deeply about things, and I confess to it. I just thought it was just the adaptation of this running gag that he just likes explosions. <laughs> and whether <laughs> oh, and the thing is, it can be read like that. It totally can. Yeah, it's it's left up to that ambiguity. Yeah, and that's what makes this manga, this manga, uh, this comic great is the fact that you can just appreciate it from that surface level of just like it do likes explosions. That's and that's fine. And you, if you, if that's the only thing you walk away from with the whole thing, that's cool. And, and I like layered works like that, that, yeah, you can have this literary approach to it where you're looking at, like, like I said, the verisimilitude of what's going on in it and everything. Or you could just read it as like, you know, two friends getting together, making a movie, suddenly one's a vampire. Okay. <laughs> then, yeah. well, and so, a, lot, <laughs> a lot of the complex thought only really applies when you, dramatic pause, look back. Oh, <laughs> oh man, that was very deliberate. Okay, you gotta end the show there. You can't. No, we can't okay, stop I'm, that. I'm really, I'm really sorry. I am. I was gonna say. I, I do think we need to end like really, really soon. <laughs> yeah, we've gone over our time. Well, I want to just comment on Maxie's point as well uh, in a story to say that I truly do appreciate your personal experiences because I can apply them also to my own experiences. Um, like both Wheelord and I lost both of our grandfathers. But one thing that I think about is that in the case of one grandparent, 
Um, I have a lot of, you know, videos, a lot of photos that I can reminisce about, you know, the positive experiences I had with them, including like a video I created, videos I created for like my paternal grandparents, like 50th wedding anniversary. I can look back on that stuff. And I did look back on all that stuff after he had passed away. And they were a big source of comfort. Like these snapshots of positive memories, like even if they aren't the complete series, they do provide a valuable source of comfort. And it's helpful and really uh, meaningful to have those if you are someone who is close to a person who has been passed or you are separated from, uh, to be able to go back and look back at those positive memories. Because, yeah, what the case of my other grandfather, uh, my maternal grandfather, I don't have a lot of positive keepsakes in terms of photos or videos. And so I really do, when I think back about him, unfortunately think about like kind of the more negative experiences I had with my paternal grandfather, uh, no maternal grandfather. So, you know, it's, it's a sad duality to think that, yeah, like I, I do wish that I also had other keepsakes and mementos for him as I do with my paternal grandfather so that I can also look back and remember the fonder times too. Cause in some ways your memory can skew you to one direction or another. And sometimes, you know, what a person you're close to that you have a complicated relationship with, it can maybe skew you more towards the negative side. So having some snapshots of some positive memories of that person in that capacity and like that circumstance, it really can help you get a more complete understanding of them and get kind of a, a cathartic sense of closure with your relationship with them in that way and uh, have those nice memories to latch on to. But then that also makes me think about the end of Goodbye Airy. And it makes me think about the, the scenes that we talked about before with Yuda's dad and Ari's other friend of how they were appreciative as people who knew this person in real life that Yuta could show the best sides of them that they could also now latch on to and remember. But at the end of the comic, it makes me also think about Ari, the new Ari, who has no context and no relationship to the previous Ari or to Yuta really, who is now basing her entire identity on that constructed narrative and like accepting that purely as the reality of who those people are, who that relation, what that relationship was. And it makes me appreciate that kind of space that Fujimoto is exploring here of like how these things are very valuable. They are so personal and important to have for a person who is connected to another person to have memories, to have like things they can narrativize positively to help them have a sense of closure, have a sense of peace with the relationship to another person, especially a person that has passed away. But it also can be warped by someone who does not have that context, who is simply an outsider looking in and accepting kind of uncritically that this was what it was, just purely, uh, it just accepts that, you know, the, the version I mean, of themselves. Uh, hey, let's... Let's be real for a second. We're all people who are in like the manga and anime community. I think we can all agree that we've probably met at least one person who bases their entire personality off of one piece. No, that's exactly yeah. kind of the idea I'm getting at. Like this idea of like creating a relationship to a piece of media and just defining your identity based off of that media. The area at the end of the comic is like the ur representation of that, the representation of just like someone who's completely, truly defined her identity, her appearance, her look, personality based on this fiction version of a previous version of herself yeah and so isn't it really interesting that a creator tatsuki fujimoto would make that sort of character and then go i should blow them exactly. up <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what i was 
That's that's how I was like having this whole introspection of like, hmm, what is Fujimoto trying to say about this ending? About whether like completely uh, universally, this idea of having these recorded narratives are purely benign in all circumstances, or some people can take their relationship to those narratives a little too far in <laughs> basing their entire lives around them. In conclusion, don't be a weeb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in conclusion, that's um, jokes <laughs> don't just don't ever read manga, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Everyone that's what I agree with. with. Well, but that means that our entire audience is they, there's they're, it's over for them. You've given up on our entire audience. <laughs> well, I think that the more new, even-handed message might be: appreciate the fiction, appreciate these narratives and what they mean to you and the comfort they can give you, but don't take it as so far as to completely wall yourself off from reality, to confine yourself in just this small space, just consuming media and basing your uh, identity upon your interpretation of media and your consumption of media. Mm-hmm. Please, listener, delete this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is basically what I've been, what Maxine and I have been saying a lot, which is read things other than Chump. <laughs> go to the holy sanctuary of big comic I mean don't just also read I'm other kidding, media but... or other fiction also uh, maybe engage in real life and the relationships you have with the people around you appreciate those experiences go touch grass yeah exactly because they literally make, they make they make a film by watching loads of films mm. which isn't how you no. learn to make a film you learn to make a film by experiencing life at the same time you can't just live within an insular sphere well in some ways you do learn to make a film by watching other films you learn like the art of filmmaking but you don't learn yeah. the experience you don't have the life experience that brings actual authenticity to your films and brings actual perspective and message yeah, you learn how to make someone else's films. That's the thing. Yeah, you base you learn to emulate, which I think is you know it's very appropriate uh, connection to make with the area at the end of the story, who has basically just learned to emulate a version of herself rather than be her own self. It's like when you read a manga that is just a really lazy ripoff of something. It's like when you read 666 Satan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Opart's Hunter in America, where something is too much like Dragon Ball, too much like Naruto, and you just kind of go like, okay, but what do you have to say? And eventually the series does get there. Oh, poor Kishimoto's little brother. <laughs> It, it's, it is the most fascinating and readily available example of this, so I do feel bad, but Seishi Kishimoto... Your series is basic because you don't <laughs> experience anything outside of what you enjoy. It, it's just Dragon Ball. And because your brother's work is similar, because you're both inspired by Dragon Ball, it feels like a really bad ripoff, at least until the time skip. Then things change a little bit. Yeah, the Ouroboros you kind of get from creators who only consume a particular type of media and stories and just kind of regurgitate those ideas in then the fiction they create can be very obvious. And not, it's not always like a bad, it doesn't always lead to bad media or bad art. Like oh, I no, love no. me and Roboco, right? And me and Roboco is just about, it's so referential about Jump and other manga. <laughs> but it was, it really leads me to a point, a talking point we 
had uh, during the tail end of our Dr. Slump podcast, where we kind of brought up Roboco as like, hey, this is kind of like a modern example of a, a comedy manga to Dr. Slump. But to me, I have like a distinction between Slump and Roboco because Slump is not really based in the reverence of other manga. Like Slump is just purely situational gagless comedy. But like you can see Toriyama's other influences, you know, from movies and tokusatsu in that comic. But it's not a comic that is about just kind of a reaction to a response to other media in the same way Roboco or a lot of other comedy manga or gag comedy manga are. And it also leads, led me to an interesting idea I had uh, talking about like kind of Toriyama's influences uh, recently on a, a like on the comments of a stream uh, recently where maybe think about well a lot of manga creators nowadays are like so influenced from the manga of the past uh, but like Toriyama he was not like a manga reader as a kid really he like he wasn't that into manga he loved movies and TV but also he just had a love of drawing and he had a love of drawing vehicles and animals and he was like kind of an active kid just going around and playing in his life. So we see that kind of broad experiences he's able to bring into his work, that his work is not just a commentary or a reaction to other manga at the time or the manga he grew up or even like just the media he grew up with. Obviously, like so much of, a lot of stuff is based on media. Like Dr. Slump is heavily influenced by TV and radio serials. Yeah, it is, but it also has broader experiences that Toriyama has brought in broader interests that are not based purely on a love of media that he puts in. And so it kind of is a more fully formed, fully rounded comic in that sense, because it's not just like a commentary or reaction to the media that has come before it that a lot of modern manga can oftentimes feel like. So in conclusion, Goodbye Aerie is pretty good. You don't yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. It leaves a lot to extrapolate upon, as we have for the past two hours. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a very dense work uh, and a very It is, work. yes. To be fair, I thought we could do this in under an hour or so, but I, I really ought to learn by now. However long I think it's going to take for us to talk about something, uh, it's easily going to be double that, at least. <laughs> oh, this is the thing. It, be, because this is a complete work in one volume, it's actually far more complex and granular than if you were talking about a 70-volume epic, because yeah. like you can get into the nitty-gritty. So I hope you've learned a valuable lesson about specifically making podcasts with me <laughs> and with Lum and with Sakaki and occasionally V-Lord when he wakes up. <laughs> right, I mean, this is what made it so appropriate for a 200 episode because we got kind of the greatest hits of manga Mavericks quirks and recurring trends uh, we had a great conversation between you and sakaki about shonen <laughs> sunday and Sh shoggy manga and how they're different from jump manga we had the great moment of we lord coming in and interrupting the podcast in the middle in a complete surprise we had our usual great conversations about like the broader industry and how like the <laughs> priests of media we're reading we've extrapolated upon oh here's this <laughs> work in the context of what's going on in the industry at the time. So it's like, yeah, this is a really great choice we had made for a conversation piece for a milestone episode. And we've done what Manga Mavericks is truly about, which is each of us getting stuck on one long thought and then it all interrupting each other because we're all like, ah, oh, what? absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and the Manga Mavericks curse of a podcast for looming beyond expectation <laughs> really is an effect. It's, it's not a Manga Mavericks roundtable if we don't. <laughs> 
No, for sure. Look, I still had fun. I don't. I don't want to make it sound like, oh man, I, I don't. I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm upset or anything. Because I, I, I did. I did oh, have no, a good this time. Is amazing. You're just the editor. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. That's the only. That's that's the only reason I'm on edge. So don't don't worry about it. <laughs> I always preferred Christian. That's my wrestling joke for this episode about Edge and Christian. Hey, there we go. <laughs> no, but th- this was fun. Um, obviously, just go, just go read Goodbye Area if we haven't already convinced you. It's on the Shonen Jump app. It's on Manga Plus. It's very available. Uh, buy it from Viz when it's inevitably picked up because I know I'm going to. I, so we have to quickly address this in closing, actually. Sure. By the time this episode comes out, Goodbye Area will be in the Shonen Jump vault. And I've seen so many bad faith arguments. I just need to be clear. It costs... Two dollars. Two pounds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It cost, oh, man. You guys actually get it cheaper than me. That's not fair. <laughs> it costs me two pounds, the equivalent of two dollars fifty, oh. to be able to go in the vault at any point and read that and so much other stuff. You don't just go... Oh, it's going behind the world's tiniest paywall. Time to fucking two dollars. Fair, fair enough. If you are not in a territory served by Visit Shonen Jump app, because it will just go off of Manga Plus, probably around the same point it leaves Shonen yeah, Jump Plus. Yeah, it's, it's going to expire on me. It's going to expire by the time this podcast comes out. But like, there will be a print version out. It's in the Shonen Jump vault. There are ways of getting to it. Like, yeah, it is accessible. Don't be weird because something can't be free forever. Just don't. Just look, right? This is me. Imagine I'm pointing out of out of a fictional screen in front of you, dear listener, directly in your face, and uttering the words "be normal." Just please about this. Just be normal. Two bucks a month is nothing. You literally can't buy a decent candy bar for two bucks anymore because of inflation. So it really is a steal to be able to read thousands upon thousands of chapters of manga for two bucks a month. It costs less than a fucking McDouble at McDonald's. All right. Like, come on. No, literally inflation is such that like I went to the grocery store recently and I was like, eh, maybe I'll get a candy bar. I'm like, wait a minute. This chocolate bar that used to cost a dollar now costs like over two dollars. What the heck is going on? And it's all the shrinkflation going on too of like products getting smaller, but the cost going up or staying the same for less. And it's like, uh, <sighs> you know, you're getting cheated by corporations uh, all the time in other areas. With manga, with show the Shonen Jump app, you're getting an insane deal for the amount of entertainment you're getting for two dollars so don't complain about having to pay two bucks for manga back in my day (laughs) here we go back in my day a mars bar was 35p and it was really big and the snickers which was called marathon back then it wasn't it was called marathon before i was born um mars bar isn't even the same for you a mars bar is a milky way basically and a milky way is just something else i hate your (laughs) country awful guys guys i love you all but we do need to end (laughs) (laughs) no don't let him end it look all i want you to do cotton desperately is just cut this off somewhere in the middle of a sentence and just pretend that was (laughs) it are you sure you guys don't want to like plug your stuff before you go or i don't do anything You are, I mean, Lum already introduced me. Like, there's th- th- everything that, no, I guess I should plug myself a little bit. Yeah, no, this is the, ex- this is, this is the exit, I suppose. Should, should we actually de, de introduce ourselves? Exit ourselves? <laughs> what am I trying to say? Let folks know where to find you to have even more conversations about manga and media and extrapolate at length on our feelings on them. 
as funny as it would be to cut to black, I, I do want to let let you guys <laughs> tell people like where they can find your stuff because we we love everything you guys do. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll go first because mine's nice and easy. You can find me on Twitter at Maxi the B. Uh, I mostly just post about manga on there. Occasionally talk about wrestling. Uh, and and that's about it. Sometimes I'll do threads. I have a pin thing on my Twitter that leads to all the useful threads I've done. Recently I did a thing where I was like, I'll show off my digital collection because I see how like YouTubers do. Here's my physical collection thing. Like it's like impressive. And I've never felt more hollow in my life. What a meaningless existence YouTubers have to lead. Absolutely fucking wretched. Like it genuinely, it removed my soul. There's no, there's nothing cool about showing what you commodified. It just, Oh, it feels weird. I hated it. But I also did other things that were neat. Uh, I did a currently reading thread. So if you head there now, there's like a thing where I've been reading Kaguya-sama and some Love and Rockets and Kirara, a great baseball manga, by which I mean it was cancelled in like 15 chapters. But that's my sort of thing. Uh, other than that, you can also find old things I've done on the website friendshipeffortvictory.com. I might want to do something with it at some point. I've been trying to, but it's hard to have a creative impulse. Uh, so on to the next person. Uh, I guess Sakaki. Yeah, let me. But I mean, do I want a view order? Are you going to take any of these, or should I just steal all of our thunder? Uh, you can take all the ones that uh, I'm not involved with, I guess. All right, so you can find me at Kirobon, K I I R O B O N, on Twitter, where there's really nothing happening there, let's be honest. Uh, yeah, I, I don't even have reading threads like Maxi or anything like that, so really, there's nothing going on there. But the where the real fun is is at WSS Talkback on Twitter, um, where we talk about Shonen Sunday and everything that's in it and all the things that unfortunately are not in the vault. So I never want to hear anybody complain about anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes, it, we are. There are lots of magazine twitters out there, and I'm and I'm going to be proud of this for till the day I dies. But we're the only ones that go through the entire magazine. And, yeah, we talk about the whole magazine, you know, um, we also have the blog, wsstalkback.blogspot.com, where we talk about, um, we have interviews, we translate interviews, have reviews of um, manga, and I was supposed to do an Aoyama and Arai interview, and got sick, and life, and yeah, hopefully I'll be able to update that soon, and anybody who wants to write anything about Shonen Sunday, or anything that's Shogakukan related, please, by all means, come in, and we are always looking for additional writers and any other input like it doesn't have to be an ongoing series it could be one that's over um i haven't in a million years for the same reason why i haven't updated the blog but i also write for tsunami faithful and i feel so bad for cj who's asked me and been super patient i'm gonna have to come up with something soon i hope <laughs> um <laughs> and aside from that and i guess i'll seal colton's thunder a little bit me and colton are doing it at another DB pod, another day, another adventure. So basically, if it's go if it's animated and has Goku in it, we're probably gonna talk about it at some point. Hopefully, you know, before we explode or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> please, so give that a check out. That's so that's been a lot, a lot of fun. Like I know this is gonna sound derogatory a bit, but I wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as I do. Like it is actually a highlight of my month when we do record. You're welcome. <laughs> Truly, I can't. I, I truly, I can't even. I can't even then say shit about that because honestly, yes, I, I do enjoy it. <laughs> oh no, hey, I, I I enjoy it too, and people should definitely go listen to it. Yeah, they should. You should, and that's me. All right, V Lord, uh, to talk about uh, every single one of your podcasts that Sakaki's involved in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Okay, I guess to start off with, um, you can find me on Twitter at VLORGTZ. 
that I write various things for all-comic.com as well as Toonami Faithful. So you can check out my writing over there. Um, but as far as podcasts go, uh, you can first check out the New York Times recommended Demon Slayer <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Over on Twitter at DSlayer Podcast. Uh, then I also do another podcast, the Dumb Weaves Podcast at Dumb Weaves Pod. Then with Sakaki, I do Oversoul Shaman King Podcast at Shaman King Pod and Saturday Night Shaggy at Sat Night Shaggy for those of you who want superior Shogaku Khan content. And yeah, that's about it. All right. Yeah. I mean, seriously, please, please go follow everyone, uh, everyone on here and their stuff. Like, you know, I, I, I'm going to get mushy for a second. I really couldn't ask for like a better group of friends to like do this podcast with. And I, I really enjoy talking with you guys whenever we have the chance to. Oh, thank you. I mean, I love all of you guys. We're sorry we make things so hard to edit. We're not, but <laughs> <laughs> you guys are my friends, so I will put up with it. No, <laughs> Yeah, this was very lovely. Again, to have like our some of our closest friend collaborators on to celebrate a milestone episode with us, you know, you guys. We always love talking with y'all, and this was another fantastic conversation. And the kinds that we really enjoyed being able to have in the course of producing this show and over the past two hundred episodes with all sorts of wonderful people and on all sorts of really great comics and some not so great ones but mostly really great comics but yeah now i think it's time to draw our conversation to a close to say goodbye to goodbye ari and leave it all behind with an explosion in the background blowing up the podcast <laughs> and everything behind it as we walk forward to the future or at least work maybe shout outs Thanks again to V-Lord, Maxi, and Sakaki for joining us to discuss the Goodbye Airy and celebrate our 200 episode with us. And once again, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us to celebrate and talk about and listen to our show and manga, our discussions of it, and, you know, just... Follow us on this journey we've had over the past couple of years and over these past 200 episodes. You know, it means a lot to us. You are as much a part of our community as Max Evie or it's like all our friends, all the wonderful people we've had on the show and talked about Mongo Way. Like, it's really thanks to your listenership and support that really makes the show just so worth doing. You know, it makes us feel like we're really, you know, creating stuff and we're talking about manga with purpose and in a way that is entertaining and enriching, you know, the community that we just so love to be a part of. But another aspect of that that I also try to add back to the community and through the show has been our community shout out segment. You know, just celebrating all the great work of like other just really amazing talented people in the anime manga criticism space and even beyond that with other folks in media criticism spaces or spaces related to topics and subjects we talk about on the show and of course i have community shout outs for our 200 episode as well including shout outs directly about goodbye Ari, including a episode of the multiversity manga club where they discuss goodbye Ari, where they also discuss kind of the theme and the artifice structure of the the title they have like a different approach of like well they don't so much think it is about like the processing of that so much so much it is about like the meta structure of the comic and it's a really interesting discussion that they had about the title and of course i always just enjoyed their discussions on jump and the series in jump in general and they have some good thoughts and other titles they've been reading as well on that episode as well 
And Whimsy Dear is did a really great video on Goodbye Airy and also just on the subject on the, how the title of the series muses on like how we're remembered after we're gone and immortalizing yourselves through uh, film and through leaving part of yourself behind through films. Like I thought that was a really interesting, really good like musing on like what Fujimoto was exploring the work. And I really appreciate how they tie back kind of the idea of creating a narrative about yourself to be remembered through film in Goodbye Airy with moments from Fire Punch, particularly the conclusion of Fire Punch, where a similar thing happens with another character kind of revisiting their life through this video that has been created about them that like kind of teaches them about themselves almost. And that was a very interesting connection to make and definitely in line with what We Lord was saying about the kind of the thematic connections between like how film is explored in Fujimoto's various works. So I thought that was a really really great piece to go broader in terms of talking about like kind of stuff we explored in our conversation just thematically like on the subject of this idea of attaching yourself to media and defining your very identity on the consumption or on the uh, immersion of yourself into media basing your identity around media I feel like a great comic that explores that in terms of the vein of nerd culture is Eltingville from uh, Evan Dorkin and the What a Cartoon podcast did a really great episode on the Welcome to Eltingville pilot, the animated pilot for Adult Swim from 2002, where they really go into the history of Evan Dorkin and the Elton comic and also just discuss about like, yeah, like how Dorkin as someone who is immersed in the comic scene, how he could come from an insider like observe like the problems of these people who like have based their identities on the consumption of film and media and all this nerd culture and the toxicity that engenders and stuff like that and perfectly satirize it in this portrayal just like these four just absolutely like just trashy kids who just are like so toxic and just like explore just the worst aspects of basing identity and basing all your self-value on media and your knowledge of media in that way so i thought thematically this was kind of an appropriate, interesting thing to shout out on this episode as well. Mm-hmm. No, that was a really great episode of uh, What a Cartoon. Uh, I had never watched Welcome to Eltingville when it was originally on TV. So this was like, I think the first time I watched it and I thought it was really interesting. And I thought What a Cartoon did a great podcast about it as always. I really love that show and, you know, the Talking Simpsons Network in general. Absolutely. Now, also continuing on the subject of films or media that also explores kind of the meta narrative of like basing identity through media or like understanding, interpreting identities through media and how media can reinforce or create a view of somebody's identity that is not reflective reality. The Michael and Us podcast did a really great episode on the film Head, which was produced as kind of like a sort of reflective addendum to the monkeys tv show and their career at the time the monkeys i guess you don't know is like kind of the prototypical boy band almost like they were pretty much a multimedia project that was conceived from the ground up to be both like a actual touring band but also a television show so they were very influential in their day but their you know image was that of like oh these are like a manufactured like creation you know they're completely an artifice and that always came to head with the actual 
members of the band who really saw themselves as more of that. So the film Head is just this very interesting art film that they created alongside, you know, Jack Nicholson as a writer and like a lot of other people involved in it. That really kind of places them in both like the historical context, but also explores this idea of how we interpret other people in media, like through the media and like whether that is actually reflective of the reality of these people and of like what is actually real or what the fans see are the monkeys that the fans see like actually the real them or are this these like these mannequins that they are projecting themselves and their desires onto and it's like the people the manufacturer pop band that people seem to criticize is that really reflective of like well what they who they actually are how they actually feel i think the film is like super interesting in that way and i think the michael has did a great job kind of exploring all the different angles of the film from both its meta commentary on the band itself and also just placing in time and place of the culture at the time and what it's saying about the culture at the time as well. Now, the next picture show also did a great two-part episode recently on Nicolas Cage's film's adaptation and his newest film, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which are both thematically linked by similar ideas of like understanding identity uh, sometimes realities through film and where that's actually reflective of reality. Now, in adaptation, Nicolas Cage is play, portraying like Charlie Kaufman, the writer, famed screenwriter, in a weird semi-autobiographical that then takes a very clearly fictitious turn. But what part of it is, adaptation is a really interesting film that you could definitely base a lot of thematic connections to it in Good by Area, I think, in terms of like it exploring kind of the blurry line between fiction and reality in terms of how much of this is actually inspired Right, reality that is being portrayed in this narrative, and how much of this is clearly yet the fictionalized, and whatever it was all fictionalized to begin with, peeling back the layers of the construction of the narrative as told in the movie. Because like it's a very interesting story. Like it's based on Charlie Kaufman's struggle to adapt like a nonfiction autobiographical called the Orchid Thief into film, but then placing himself into narrative in this film, and but then inventing all these fictional elements, and so it really blurs lines between what is like genuine, really an experience, and then what has been imagined. And so it's super fascinating that way. An unbearable weight is not necessarily as like artistically uh, or philosophically ambitious, but it's, it's still a very funny film and still does a lot in terms of like presenting this idea of like, well, we're portraying Nick Cage as the actor as himself in this film. And they were trying to communicate like, well, how much about the Nick Cage in this film is actually reflective in a meta sense or an actual sense of like his real self. And so I think trying to parse through that dividing line is also interesting to do with that film. I think the next picture show crew has a great conversation on both films and like that angle of it and that aspect of how they are commenting on the medium of film and how it actually portrays people and how it portrays or obscures reality it's also very fun to just hit, listen to Scott and uh, Tasha argue in, in the adaptation discussion of her rather like adaptation has less merit or not if it, it isn't trying to have any fidelity or faithfulness as an adaptation of the Orchidip book in any way or whether it still has value in actually being self-indulgent in itself like if just the fact that no it is self-indulgent it's not trying to be an adaptation whether that diminishes its artistic value or not so that was a fun conversation that at some at one point they they we have to admit themselves well, okay you know in the film they talk about the Ouroboros I think their conversation is going in an Ouroboros basically at this point so it was a fun discussion. Now we talked about Summer Ghost in our new shout outs. And so I just want to mention a video that I found very interesting about Summer Ghost from Trixie from Yig Studio. 
she's not a big fan of Yoro Sumino's work. Uh, she didn't really care for Pancreas, but she did watch Summer Ghost. And I found, you know, even though she didn't have like the, you know, most positive interpretation or like she didn't get as much out of it. She didn't dislike it as much either. I think she gave a very fair-handed uh, critique of the film. You know, I haven't watched it myself, but based on how she was describing it. And even though she wasn't, like, super blown away by it, I, I still found myself very interested in the film just after hearing her dig into it, like, after watching the video. So I think if you want to learn more about the film and what makes it interesting and just what makes the, the history of the film interesting in terms of, like, what the director is trying to get across, what the artist are trying to communicate in the film and have, like the influence of Makoto Shinkai on another new generation of filmmaker and in these like films that we're seeing pop up is super interesting. So definitely want to shout that out as well. Now moving on to shout outs that touch upon the retrospective, you know, touch upon, you know, people reaching milestones and, you know, being uh, reflective about them. You know, arguably one of the very first shout outs, community shout outs ever given on the show was Mr. Fusion's Dragon Ball Dissection. Because way back in like the eighth episode of this podcast, I believe, in the episode discussion, I just, you know, back when I wrote the episode descriptions, uh, I often would like, for every episode, like in the early days, I wouldn't, they would almost take a more of a freeform, like kind of blog post style. And so in that episode description of like the eight episode, I recommended Mr. Fusion's Dragon Ball section, as well as Derek Padula's Dao Dragon Ball books. So you could argue that, uh, yeah, Dragon Ball section, like is one of the original community shout outs of this podcast. So it's a big milestone. It's a big thing for Lance to have reached the conclusion of the original manga in his base, his section of the entire series. Like it's a, it's a big thing. And like he has been doing the Dragon Ball section series for 10 years, just step by step going through every arc of the manga, just piece by piece, breaking down pieces of the story and analyzing them. And now he's reached the end of the original series. And Dragon Ball Dissection as like a whole is not done because he's moving on to Dragon Ball GT. Potentially he could move on to other Dragon Ball League after that. But like it is a big, big achievement that you know, we've been working on for 10 years, this massive retrospective. And I've been enjoying it for just so long as well. It's just, it really is very wistful, very melancholy to like have reached the end of the thing, but it was like a cool celebratory thing. Like, wow, it's such an achievement to have produced like over 130 plus episodes on Dragon Ball dissecting the manga. And it's a great series. I mean, I loved it. One of my favorite YouTube series, just great critique analysis of Dragon Ball. And their final episode where, you know, once again, giving their thoughts on the ending of Dragon Ball and then just overall thoughts on the series, the Boo arc, and then just every arc in succession, just a recap of their thoughts on them. I, it was very, very just mistful for me to watch it. It's like, man, I've been enjoying this series for many years. And like, I also feel like kind of inline kind of like kind of being kind of a little melancholy, sad that his coverage of the original manga is over, but still a lot to look forward to in his coverage of Dragon Ball GT and even more stuff he's talking about on his channel so definitely want to give him another shout out you know in the wake of him finishing his coverage of the original manga and if you haven't like checked out his videos yet even though i mentioned shouted them out uh, many many times before in community shout outs in the past definitely do so now that the entire manga coverage uh, is concluded 
Now, the Tanami Fable podcast, uh, there are two podcasts of theirs I want to shout out. And one is like a retrospective on the Black Clover anime. CJ gathered Vaser Kid and Vlord and Kuro together to just talk about like their thoughts on the Black Clover anime, you know, how they changed from the beginning to the end, what they really liked about it, what they really liked about the series in general. And I thought that was a good reflection of the Black Clover anime and what it did well and what they're looking forward to next about the series. And then also, you know, speaking of other milestone episodes, the Gatami Favorite Podcast reached their 400 episode. And so they did a great Twitch live stream where they, you know, just reflected on each staff member's histories with Tanali Faithful and becoming a part Tanali Faithful. And humorously enough, Wheelard was also late to that as well. He also <laughs> entered into the middle of it, and him entering into the middle of it split the stream into. Like there were technical difficulties right when he jumped in, so it was very funny. <laughs> but no, uh, it was very just nice to listen to everyone just talk about you know their involvement with Tony Faithful, how much working with the site and as part of the site has meant to them, the experiences they had over the years, the bonds and relationships they formed with each other. Uh, yeah, it's just the community that they are just you know so happy to be a part of, and so I thought that was just a very sweet retrospective, very nice way to celebrate their 400 episode, and I. I mean, I really have appreciated the Omni Faithful crew and what they've been doing for a long, long time. So, yeah, cheers to them on their 400th episode. And here's the 400 more as well. And the final shout out I want to give on this episode, uh, speaking of people who are you know, celebrating my souls, but also like reaching out for support, is Yada Tai Chi, you know been really enjoying their editorial content and their resources and all this great stuff for a long time. Uh, a lot of great writers work for them. And recently, Katie Castillo, the editor-in-chief of the site, you know, on the anniversary of their seventh year anniversary, they launched their Patreon and they basically uh, described that, you know, they, for most of their site's existence, they've kind of been pro bono. They've just been doing things like you know, every, all the contributors have been just doing things uh, for free and they want to change that they want to start paying their contributors but also there's a lot of site costs that go into the maintenance of the website and everything so there's they need to raise support so that's why they set up a patreon they have a breakdown of like everything that they need to pay for and where all the costs are going uh they're being very like comprehensive very thorough about like just explaining like why they need financial assistance and you know they're a really great site that i've really enjoyed reading all the stuff they published on there for a long time now and so definitely i think if you also have similarly enjoyed their work you should absolutely try to support their way i really like their stuff and want to see them keep going so yeah that about will do it for the shout outs that I want to give out this time. And once again, you know, I, there are so many people. There's just a lot of great work that's being done uh, in the editorial space, in the critique space, in terms of anime and manga discourse and in the community. Sites like Yadataichi and Anime Feminist and Tanami Faithful, all sorts of creators and podcasters and video essayists. They're doing such great work. And we're really glad to be a part of uh, this community. And that's why, you know, once you create a show outside, we want to spread the love around. We want to spread the word around other great people and their work around. And, you know, just help continue to enrich the community and spread awareness of like other people in the community, connect us all together and you're just uh, continue fostering a culture of just like acknowledging each other and collaborating each other and celebrating just all these, this media we love to just talk about and just analyze. It's just so much joy to just form friendships and communities and discussions around. And once again, to conclude off our 200 episode, uh, we want to 
to thank you all for listening to us for so long and supporting us for so long and helping us continue to do what we do. And we hope you've gotten a lot of enjoyment out of the show and we hope to continue to give you even more enjoyment and many more episodes in years to come. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to not just this episode, but you know the podcast in general. We really can't thank you guys enough. Uh, your support really means the world to us. And uh, you know, I, I think I think I can say it. I think we can say for sure that this will probably be our next episode. Uh, you know, just going back to highlighting different creators and collaborating with uh, you know a lot of creative people. Uh, we're finally going to be releasing our interview with Jin Chan Yamwai, editor in chief of Shrine Comics, mm-hmm. and letterer of me and Roboco. And it was such a fantastic interview to do with Jin. I really. We do apologize for holding on the interview for a little bit, but like it was really nice to talk to him about like his just, you know, passion for comics, passion for manga and all the cool stuff that they're doing over at Tron Comics, his own like comics career journey, his own work on his own comics, uh, talking about high school romance and Jing. And it was a really, really fun conversation. And yeah, those kind of interview episodes are stuff that we just absolutely love to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, until then, uh, I think we can go ahead and uh, start plugging us and where we, people can find the podcast. Lum, why don't we start with you? You can find me at Lamariasha on Twitter. It's Lamariasha Variety Places like Amateur Revelation and any list where there's a Lamariasha that you can find me, such as Letterboxd as well. And you can also read my reviews on MangaWords.com. We got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews planned to go out. Look forward to more on that. So you can find the other podcasts I do. Lum Squad, the USA Officer, Focus Podcasts I do with my good friend Andrew A.C. Yoshimara. We discuss the wonderful wacky world of Unkohashi's USA Officer. We've been having a lot of fun covering the manga as it's been released by Wiz Media, the movies that have been coming out by Crunchyroll and Discotech. And we are so excited to talk about the new anime planned to come out later this year. There's just so much regarding USA Officer. There is to discuss. Such a great time to be a Rosetta fan. So, you want to follow along in our discussions of the manga, movies, anime, and more. Definitely check out Lump Squad. Listen to us pretty much on every podcast platform you can think of. Apple Quest, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor. We're also cross post episodes of the Manga Arts feed and post episodes early, oftentimes months in advance, on the Manga Arts Patreon. And you can also follow us on Twitter for updates and stuff on Twitter at Lum underscore squad on Tumblr, Lum squad pod at Tumblr.com. And you can also find our YouTube channel. Just search Lum squad in the channel bar and go find us. And if you like the art I make, the illustrations I do for our podcasts, or the art and animations I make in general, you can find that stuff on the Instagram at SidArtWorks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts besides this one, which you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. You click on the podcast page and you'll basically find everything I'm doing, even uh, past projects I'm not involved in anymore, as well as uh, a ton of guest spots and other podcasts I've had over the many years I've been podcasting at this point. Uh, once again, you can find all my other podcasting stuff at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Um, but as for Manga Mavericks, you can find every episode of our podcast at MangaMavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at Patreon.com slash Manga Mavericks, where at the $2 tier, you will have the chance to listen to select episodes of the podcast before they're up on our main feed. If we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited before it's scheduled to come out on our main feed, we'll put it up on our Patreon first. But admittedly, you know, that also depends on our time and what we have edited at any given point. Um, 
Um, so for more reliable content, you should really sign up for our $5 tier, uh, where we upload a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. And uh, I think by the time this is out, uh, yeah, yeah, I think our newest bonus podcast is actually uh, the return of the Manga Mavericks Book Club, uh, where basically I go through uh, a bunch of different series that we've covered on Manga Mavericks before, whether they're series that we talked about and I just thought we could talk more about them, or sometimes they're series I've had to miss out on a discussion of. An example being Saint Seiya. I originally did a whole Saint Seiya Manga Mavericks book club read-through with my good friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Enemy Podcasting Network. Uh, but before that, I had my friend Grant come on to talk about the first part of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Phantom Blood. And uh, for this read-through, we're returning to JoJo to talk about part two, Battle Tendency. It was a really great discussion of the first volume and how we think the transition from part one to part two fares and uh, how part two really hits the ground running compared to part one of JoJo. So... Uh, if you want to hear Grant and I talk even more about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, you can listen to that first episode at the $5 tier on our Patreon at patreon.com slash mavericks, along with a bunch of other bonus podcasts. I'm pretty sure we have definitely over 20 hours of extra content on there that you can listen to. So again, if you want to listen to more stuff from us and also support us and everything we do, again, please support us on patreon.com slash mavericks. But as for everything else, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks, where we post different excerpts of the podcast, including some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Please subscribe. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what do you think about Goodbye, Ari, and all of Tatsuki Fujimoto's work? You know, what are you reading right now that you want to tell us about and maybe have us cover on the show? You know, just email us anything about manga, the podcast, whatever you want. We'll read it on the show. We love getting emails from you guys. Again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on a bunch of different platforms at this point, but especially on Apple Podcasts and even Spotify. You know, if you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show. And, uh, you know, we just also enjoy getting feedback from you guys, uh, you know, whether it's positive or negative. So, um, you know, just leave us a rating and a review on uh, on wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, you know, if you so wish. But uh, that's going to be about it for this episode. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening to episode 200 of the Maga Marks podcast. And we'll see you guys next time for episode 201. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.